Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. I hope those of you who are living in the Northern Hemisphere are having a great summer. And uh, to top off our summer and to give me a short break, we're releasing in the month of August two episodes of highlights, best of videos from our four years of Origins Podcasts. It's hard to believe we've been going for over four years now. And when we go back and look at the episodes we've done, it's it's really humbling to see the amazing guests who have agreed to be on and, and the fun times we've had. And so we've tried to compile for you a, a set of best of videos, and we'll be releasing two podcasts, the first for the first two years and the second for the second two years. In this first podcast, we go back to the very beginning of, of the Origins podcast with our earliest guests that included... Uh, Ricky Gervais and Noam Chomsky, among others, among Nobel laureates uh, Sheldon Glashow, um, uh, uh, scientist Alan Stern, uh, astrophysicist musician Brian May, the list goes on and on. Uh, and it's it's amazing to go back and see um, see all the variety of people we we interviewed. And in those days, we were traveling around the world. It was before the the uh, pandemic, and we visited. Uh, Brian May in England and Neil deGrasse Tyson in New York and and uh, um, Stephen Greenblatt in Boston at Harvard uh, and and of course Ricky in England. Uh, I hope you enjoy these early episodes and for those of you who are new to the Origins podcast, I hope this will give you a chance to see that our backlist is worth listening to. Either way, I hope you have a great summer and I hope you enjoy this first podcast of best of videos from the origins podcast and i hope you'll consider supporting us and continuing to support us on critical mass because that provides us the necessary support to keep the podcast going and also for the origins project foundation to do its work so enjoy this first podcast and i hope it whets your appetite for the second two years The laws of physics we least understand can be extrapolated back to a time when the entire universe, yeah, all 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars, all that matter was crammed into a region the size of a single atom. Is that, I mean, so that's, that's because so weird. Most, most things are nothing, aren't they? So, Mo- so an atom is mostly nothing. A yeah. fly in the hour yeah. will go well, around a tennis ball. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, matter mostly it's 10,000. The, the electron orbits the nucleus of, on a size about 10, 10 to 100,000 times bigger than the atom. But right. it's even smaller than that. Yeah. It's, so it's, does it work, though? Does that, if, if that's a, a, not just a metaphor, this yeah. is what annoys me. Where I, 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 sooner or later, I don't want the metaphor. I want to yeah, do the, the real truth. thing. So, yeah. But to start with a metaphor, does, does, that, does the science work if every atom was the Albert Hall with a, mm. uh, with a golf ball and a mm-hmm. fly going around? Mm-hmm. Could every... Could every golf ball and fly in the universe fit into one Albert Hall? Oh, yes, but the problem is it stops being an atom. Because the atom is... So they're, they're, can you squish that even you, more? You, oh, yeah, you, you, you so are. At well, that point, the atoms don't exist because they couldn't. They, 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 so if we get down to what matter is... What is there... Is there a, it, I, is, I like feeling stupid. I no, like no, it. Qu- right. Asking questions right. is never so, stupid. Okay, so, so, I, I, so, so is there anything that is pure... Is there something as pure matter that can't be squished anymore? That was what that we don't know. 
We, we know that, we know that Fuck you yeah, yeah No no but that's the right answer <laughs> <laughs> You and no. your science Yeah exactly What How, a fraud Yeah yeah exactly We don't know well, We can all say that <laughs> yeah, Exactly you Right see? Yeah. Okay so So that's a, Okay that's oh, the best god. Not knowing oh, is a, oh god Right okay So Right Hold on Oh no there's the other thing right Okay, right, okay. So Okay we've done that Yeah okay, we've, we've done that, that. Okay. No, Wait wait So um, There was no there was no time before time. There That's a no, good question. Well, we so don't there was, know. There was a, wait, but, so there was a place. Well, there, no, no, I, in my, I, I, this is what get. This is what. This is what kills me. Okay, so let's get that right. Yeah. All the everything that exists, mm-hmm. matter, antimatter, everything, yeah. space, time, mm-hmm. nothingness, all didn't. It didn't have to exist. That's the great thing. It it can spontaneously pop into existence. Space, time matter and you don't need any supernatural shenanigans that's why i wrote this book called the universe of nothing it's amazing to me that science has come to the point saying well we don't know but it's plausible that you can start with with no space no time right and poop the okay, laws of quantum so, mechanics so, space and time so they pop we, into existence. okay so if we take let, let, let's get to what's physical and yeah, real okay, so okay. everything that exists now was in the thing size smaller than that right? and a lot I, more than what exists but anyway. yeah okay, okay. what yeah, yeah, no, it's really weird. We've lost that, some bits. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we've lost a lot. Oh, yeah. fuck me, where's yeah, that yeah. then? <laughs> where's that? Nowhere. It just disappeared. Yeah, it's nowhere. Where is exactly, it? it just dissipated. Yeah, it's, it's right. No, I mean, this, the is, inter- is, let this, me this, 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 this is what annoys me about um, um, quantum physics. Yeah. It overturns all the things I held sacred in science. Yeah, exactly. Which it's is counterintuitive. Which is what's, what's like, wonderful. That's what you should love go, it. You should love it because nothing's sacred. But I mean, I mean, from like Newton's laws to yeah. relativity, which I had down. Well, 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 you, well, no, but they're not wrong. The great thing about right. science is, no, they work. They're just they contingent, do. as well, opposed to what. Every, but everything's contingent. But they're uh, just out of interest. This, okay, right, okay, the uncertainty <laughs> principle. Okay, good. Okay, fuck me. It's right, great? where do I start? I, I, I know so little that I don't know what question to ask. That's how fucking. Frustrating this is for well, me. I haven't, I haven't got the language to so, ask you the right question. Questions. So yeah, so we can work together through the right okay, questions. Right. And the question Trump knows what he's doing when he builds up uh, fear of the rapists and murderers and Islamic terrorists. And just to give you an example, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Steve Bannon, you know, is yes, kind of um, Rasputin, uh, uh, <laughs> came down to. to uh, Arizona, where we live, in Tucson, and there was a meeting. He ran a meeting at a very luxurious gated community south of Tucson, not too far from the border. You know, guards, gates, yeah, sure. uh, very rich, and so on. Uh, the perp- he had a lot of nice people there, like Chris Kobach, this guy who's trying to keep people from voting. And yes. so on. Uh, there was a good report of it in a kind of a independent Tucson newspaper, Tucson Sentinel, had a reporter there. Uh, The goal of the meeting was to try to raise private money to build the wall. Uh Of course, Congress is run by communists. They're not going to do anything. Uh, So all these super rich people are pitching in money to build the wall. But the discussions were interesting. Uh, People were describing how frightened they are. I mean, if there's anybody in the world safer than them, I don't know how you'd find them. Yeah, yeah. But these are people who are frightened. We got to protect ourselves. In fact, there was one legislator there who said, I'm not only in favor of the wall. I think we ought to have a wall from the border right along the Arizona border uh, against 
California <laughs> all the way up to the Canadian border because these people are going to come in from California. You know, yeah, we got to protect ourselves, and not only do we, maybe we need an army to protect us around the gated community, but yeah, and, no, this, and when Trump talks to the public, at least according to the reports that come up, people resonate. Yeah, no, it's it, it really works effectively. I, I never know with Trump whether it's an accident or whether he's plan, you know, whether he really knows what he's doing, or whether he just latches on by luck to an issue that that seems to resonate and and, and he and he uses it, it up. Yeah. and then pick it up. He just tests the water. But he's with, doing that very. But meanwhile, you have to remember that his primary constituency, corporate power and yeah. the wealthy, uh, he's serving them with uh, uh, real uh, dedication. Would, would, did you, would you say that in terms of, you know, I mean, I don't want to harp on this too much, but in, in terms of the greatest danger, if there is one, of, of, of Trump being president, many people feel that the fact that he's loose cannon, the fact that he does no, 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 no reading, no knowledge about details about the world around him, or certainly doesn't read or listen to his advisors, would you say that's a bigger danger than the fact that effectively he's apparently um, implementing underneath all the noise uh, the the uh, an agenda that 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 you worry about or not? I mean, uh, there's a lot of dangers with Trump. Uh, the worst one, which overwhelms everything else, is the dedication to destroy the environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, th- that just swamps everything else. That ought to be a screaming headline every day. Well, I'm surprised that if 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 private money wanted to build the wall, eight point six billion is not a lot of money for. That could easily be done. I mean, more than that's spent on elections. Uh, but, but interestingly enough, when you put it in perspective, talking about the environment, talking about about progress, eight point six billion, which is what he was asking for the wall, was more is more than the entire amount, the entire budget of the National Science Foundation. I mean, if one talks about what is better for our security in the future, how, it, how about the uh, subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, which is much bigger than that? How yeah. about the Subsidies to the financial institutions. Uh, There's some good technical studies, IMF and others, who point out that the financial institutions, which are pretty much predatory, they don't, they barely help the economy. They may harm it, and they're a huge part of the economy. They're huge. Yeah. They are maintained effectively by public subsidy, by the implicit government insurance policy. Mm-hmm. which raises their credit ratings, gives them access to cheap money. Uh, when you count all of that, it's pretty much their profits. I mean, compared with this, uh, the wall and the National Science Foundation aren't even visible. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's interesting to think about that. I mean, and similarly, when we come to the climate change and... and, and well, that's, oh, this is, uh, the, that's the, the two things that ought to be emphasized by the political opposition, if there were one, mm-hmm. are this dedicated commitment to destroy the prospects for organized human life within a short period and the radical uh, intensification of the already extremely dangerous uh, uh, arms con- military yeah, confrontation. I, 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 and this notion that, that we started with, the notion that um, intellectuals and elites aren't necessarily, uh, are, are sort of by the party line almost more than any, anyone else, but I see uh, another issue that's really become more pronounced since we last had our dialogue, which is this issue of free speech. And in this case, free speech on campuses. You may be able to speak more freely, but one is finding more and more two things that are 
are remarkable, interesting, and maybe to some extent disturbing. That is, first of all, that that we're seeing uh, more and more speakers, uh, especially on the right to some extent, but but almost every subject area being um, uh, stopped from speaking on campus, not but I mean by students in this case. The, the notion that there was there was a there was a um, a lecture that was happening in a, in a university in the West where the speaker was com- going to speak about due process and free speech. And there were, and safe rooms were set up on campus so that students didn't have to hear discussions about this. Yet it's an issue that seems to now be adopted by the right. That, that, that there, if you look at and saying who is speaking out, and again, one of the, you know, Trump's executive order may be impotent, but the notion that Trump would, would put an executive order saying universities can't get federal funding unless they promote free speech is, is kind of interesting. This notion that, that the left in some ways is, is now being seen as not promoting free speech. So I thought I, we, we should have that discussion a little bit. Well, I question the notion of the left, but it, it's certainly happening. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's wrong in principle. And beyond that, it's just tactically insane. It's the best gift that you can give to the right. Yeah. If some uh, right-wing speaker tries to go to a campus and is blocked, it's a gift. Uh, it's they love it, and you can see the way they're using it. This is oh, okay. We're de- we're the good guys. Yeah. We're defending freedom of speech. You guys are Nazis trying to protect. So if you want if you want to give enormous gifts to the right wing and the uh, uh, to the far right uh, to the neo fascists, that's the way to do it. But exactly, but it's even broader than that. I think that there's some concern and. You know, two people that I, I obviously am not a fan of Trump. I'm not a fan of Betsy DeVos. I've written about how uh, opposed many of her aspects. But she, but but there's another aspect of this notion, which comes back to people being afraid in the United States. This oh. notion that words have to be protected. That, that words are scary. That there needs to be safe zones. It's I've, like I've, uh, I've, trigger warnings. Trigger yeah. warnings. That when you when you would think, and I've always said this in the context of science, but I think it's true more generally. One of the purposes of education, I used to say it of science, but one of the purposes of education is to make people uncomfortable. Because if you're comfortable, you're not pushing the you're 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 not pushing the boundaries of what you know, understand. And if we if we, I was just at a, a lecture where 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 people were saying they they've changed their curriculum. Because they're, if they upset students, they're worried that universities will remove them from teaching, um, and and that that seems to me, especially in an environment where our at least our higher educational system has been very effective uh, in in educating students more more so maybe than the public school system. I, I'm as concerned about. I I think you're you're the fact that the right is usurping an issue that will come back to haunt others. Is one thing, but I'm more I'm equally concerned about the fact that people are afraid of ideas or or discussions that make them uncomfortable. That's first of all, that's always been true, but since it was always the mainstream who was fighting off the wild men in the wings, mm-hmm. nobody noticed it. Uh, now we're noticing it, uh, and it, it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. It's even worse now with the idea that. Somehow, like what you said, you have to have special places where students won't hear things. Mm. Uh, this is totally crazy. I mean, if a speaker comes in who you think is uh, extremely offensive, uh, first of all, you don't have to go to the talk if you don't want. Exactly. But the sane thing to do, which sometimes is done, 
is to use it, use the opportunity as an educational opportunity. Yeah. Go listen to them. Meanwhile, set up alternative forums where you discuss the issues, you think about them, you look at the pros and cons. Nothing is ever 100% obvious. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go through it. Let's come out with a reasonable position. We'll have a basis if it's the right out- outcome to oppose their positions, not just shout them down saying, well, we're so scared of them, we can't even hear them. And exactly. Shout them down, play music so they can't talk, even if they're allowed on campus. It's, it's, I, I've, I, I've had enough of that in my own experience, but that's not the reason. It's wrong whoever does it. When uh, the right wing is targeted, it's uh, tactically crazy. When the left is targeted, it doesn't matter because nobody pays attention y- anyway. Y- yeah. But uh, when those who have some basis in power systems are attacked, then it's tactically ridiculous because it's giving them an enormous gift. Well, what I what I never see is this recognition, well, I very rarely see it, of the fact that the whole purpose of free speech is to protect the speech of those you detest. In principle. That's, that's what a democracy is supposed to in be. In principle. But mm-hmm. the people who have upheld that have always been bitterly denounced. On every issue. Well, and but you know what's... I but, can give you many examples. Yeah, but I'm pretty scared. I mean, as someone who sort of grew up in the 60s, to see that w- the people that I used to think of as progressive That's are now supporting si- exactly the opposite. Yes, but that was the 60s. Yeah. And remember, the 60s was the period when even the Supreme Court, really for the first time, took strong positions in support of freedom of speech. That's not American history. It's worth remembering that. First of all, the First Amendment does not protect freedom of speech. It prote- it prevents prior restraint. Yeah. But if uh, I give a talk uh, criticizing the government, First Amendment permits them to put me into jail as long as they didn't stop me from saying it in the first place. First Amendment's a very weak barrier to repression. And in fact, uh, freedom of speech issues didn't arise at the court level, the Supreme Court, until the 20th century. And if you look at the history, it's not uplifting. Mm -hmm. The first protections of freedom of speech, sort of, were during the First World War, the famous uh, dissents of Holmes and Brandeis. Notice, first of all, they were dissents. Uh, Secondly, they were very limited. So in the Schenck case, the first case where... Shank, this guy was being you know, sentenced for having written pamphlets against the war. Uh, the dissenters, Holmes, voted in favor of the uh, uh, of of the decision. They said, "Well, you know, too far. We've got to got to have a little freedom of speech." Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, did it. Uh, it's a very mixed record up until the '60s. The first strong defense of freedom of speech by the court was actually in 1964. It's Times v. Sullivan, mm-hmm. when it was a civil rights issue, when yeah. uh, um, the state of Alabama uh, uh, declared that they were being libeled by the Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement because you know racist sheriffs were being attacked. Mm-hmm. Kind of technically, they were right by the thinking of the framers, but yeah. the Supreme Court overruled what's called sovereign immunity—that yeah. the state is protected from uh, 
harmful speech, which holds in most countries, incidentally, including Canada, mm-hmm. including Britain. They still have that. Yeah. But the United States struck it down. Then there was even a further further decisions. Uh, Bradenburg v. Ohio took a very strong position in favor of freedom of speech. That's 1969. <laughs> it's not American history. Yeah. So, yes, there is a modern tradition of protection of freedom of speech, but it's it's not deeply rooted or sturdy. Uh, and when, say, Clarence Thomas recently uh, said, we got to review these decisions because that's not what the framers had in mind, he's not wrong, you know, if, if you really look back at the history. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's true that among the countries of the world, <laughs> the United States is probably supreme and protection of freedom of speech. Yeah, I know. That's when I grew up in Canada and I I used to do history of Canada. Yeah, it's amazing to see how those protections were more effective here than in Canada. Well, remember the Salman Rushdie case? Uh When uh, this came up in Canada, uh, there was a question debated about whether he was attacking the state religion. Uh And uh, they finally decided he wasn't, so it was okay because it was some other religion. In fact, in Britain, that same case... Remember, this was when he was criticizing Islam. Yeah, sure. It went to the House of Lords, and they considered, uh, they said, well, he isn't liable because he was condemning Islam. If he'd been condemning the Anglican Church, it would have been a different story. That's Britain. We're not talking about Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah, no, it's— So uh, these are very thin reeds. And uh, like in in France, for example, uh, there are laws— I mean, I'm bitterly condemned for having criticized them, but there are laws in France that grant the state the right to determine historical truth and to punish deviation from what they determine. Mm -hmm. And that's been used, okay? And the French left intellectuals support it. We've got to stop the speech we don't like. I mean, this stuff is very thin. And the United States, by and large, has comparatively a good record. But the things you're pointing out are hitting away at some of the best things that have happened here. And unfortunately, it is coming from students, young people. Record. Your chapter on Darwin and and, and uh, Adam and Eve really resonate with me, not just because I, I'm a fan of Darwin, but because of something, there's two things. One, it reminded me of the whole Adam and Eve story and, and, and the confrontation that of course modern evolution in terms of uh, does to literate to to the religion and and the whole and i i love the way hitchens described the adam and eve story in some sense that we're born born sick and commanded to be well which is just the perfect to me the perfect utter contradiction that makes most of modern religion despicable in my opinion is that what hitchens yeah that's interesting because it's a it's a quotation as hitchens probably knew from a 17th century English um, pro- a poet named Fulk Greville, who was oh, a Calvinist. Oh, wearisome condition of humanity, born under one law to another bound, created sick, commanded to be sound. Well, see, there you go. I'm sure uh, I, there's no doubt that Hitchens got that. Oh, well, that's lovely. I've learned something. I think there's another aspect of global warming that, again, is relatively simple physics that people um, can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at a, a pattern of global warming, what you see is that um, the Arctic's warmed a lot more than the rest of the world yeah. over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. And also that the land has warmed about twice as much 
as the ocean. So, you know, overall, the world's warmed by about one degree. Over land, that number's almost two degrees. And it turns out there's a very simple reason for that. You know, when we, when we plant tulip bulbs uh-huh. in the fall, you plant them a few inches down, mm-hmm. and they're protected from the frost of the winter. Uh-huh. Right? Since Lord Kelvin in the 19th century, he actually measured uh, temperature down a mine shaft to study the diffusion uh-huh. uh, through soils. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he did all of these amazing experiments. Um, he was interested in the age of the Earth from thermal conductivity. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, that's what I always love about phys- when I do physics is that whatever question you have, someone has spent their life studying it. It's yeah, really kind it's of amazing. it's remarkable. But it, when you think about um, this problem, uh, it means that the surface of the Earth doesn't actually have a whole lot of ability to absorb heat. Mm-hmm. And the reason is not because it has low heat capacity. Rock actually has a lot of heat capacity. Yeah. It's It's that essentially... Rock is you have to diffuse. You're yeah. you're 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 conducting that heat through a solid, and that's yeah. fundamentally slow. Yeah, that's why you can plant your tulip bulbs a few inches down, and they're protected yeah. from the winter th- yeah. freeze. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, but the ocean is different. The ocean mixes. Mm-hmm. The upper hundred meters mixes almost instantly because of the winds and the churning. Yeah, sure. Um, deeper down, you have currents that that mix it on slightly longer timescales. But you know, decades to centuries. Now you're talking about you know, the upper thousand meters of the ocean and the deepest ocean, the four or 5,000 meters down is mixed over thousand year timescales. But what that means is if you had the planet completely land and you, and if you, if we had no oceans at all, and we raise the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere, like we've done by burning fossil fuels, Mm. the earth's surface would heat up relatively quickly and achieve that equilibrium really quickly Uh because there's not much Ability to soak up heat. Yeah. We have a world that's covered with ocean, mm-hmm. right? 70% of our of our surface is covered with ocean and it mixes. And so what you can think of this is do the experiment. You're adding carbon dioxide. The earth's trying to heat up, mm-hmm. right? Energy's coming in. And the way you achieve that energy balance is by the surface heating up so that the radiation going out equals the radiation coming in. Exactly. But the problem is the oceans are cold. Yeah. And it takes a while to heat up because they mix that heat downward. And so essentially 90% of the energy from the greenhouse effect yes. that, that's being absorbed by the surface of the earth is going into heating the oceans. Where do we see that? We actually see that in sea level rise. So exactly. thermal expansion of water. And so in some ways, sea level rise is global warming Yeah, and because fact- that's 90% of the energy. You know, global warming is ocean warming. Yeah, I, I want to slow. I want to decompress that a little bit for people because I think a lot of people think sea level rise comes just from simply melting of ice, you know, in in Antarctica or Greenland. But the point is that the sea level rise we're seeing, when water heats up, it expands. That's it's right. just simple. And, and so today, it's about half, maybe a little less, forty percent of the total sea level rise is due to thermal expansion. Mm-hmm. There is an important contribution from Greenland sure. and from Antarctica. Sure. It turns out that over the next century. Those are going to get much bigger. Yeah, the exact thermal expansion will continue, but but the melting of the ice sheets is what we have to worry about because they're the ones that can that can really add to the sea level rise. But today, global warming, like it's 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 happening, and people too often use like surface temperatures yeah. to indicate global warming. You say yeah. that's the tail. Yeah, that's not the dog. The dog is the ocean. Yeah. Right, and if you want to see global warming, measure the temperature of the ocean. 
What's incredible is that we actually have new technology now. You know, until 15 years ago, the way we measured the temperature of the ocean is we went out on ships. Yeah, sure. I remember that. For, for, dropped for thermometers down yeah. on a wire yeah. and measured them. That's what physical oceanographers did. Yeah, yeah. Hank Stommel, the great physical oceanographer who was at Woods Hole and at MIT, um, uh, Hank Stommel, in the I guess in the fifties, he said, uh, "Oceanography is like trying to do weather forecasting with a handful of of cars towing kites around <laughs> on a moonless night <laughs> with clouds, so that you couldn't see into the medium." Oh, wow! You know okay. that's essentially yeah. what oceanography was. Yeah. 15 years ago, they started this program called Argo, where these floats, they actually are designed to sit at about 1,000 meters depth. Uh And every 10 days, they drop down to 2,000 meters, and then they slowly rise up to the surface, taking measurements every meter Uh of temperature and salinity. And then when they get to the surface, they beam the data back to a satellite, and then they sink back down to 1,000 meters and wait another 10 days. We now, in, in a few years we collected more data on the oceans than we had in the whole history of oceanography. How many of these things are out there? There are about 4,000 of them. And it's a huge international program. The U.S. is the biggest contributor, but we're probably, we've certainly contributed much less than half. There are, I think, 60 nations that have contributed to this float program. It's nice to see a global effort for a global problem. It's always nice to see that. It has transformed our understanding of the oceans. And it's allowed us to see that the oceans are indeed heating up. Mm-hmm. And that is, to me, the real proof of global warming. Yeah. There's another dark side of this, though, which is that um, it means that if we were to somehow magically freeze the level of CO2 tomorrow, yes, not emit any more carbon dioxide from burning fossil yeah. fuels, yeah. which is not possible, yes, um, uh, the oceans probably got another thousand years of warming <laughs> because the oceans are not in equilibrium, right? The oceans are cold. They're soaking up this heat. And they're going to still coke it up. And, and the carbon dioxide is still there. And yeah. it's we, so, so if you think about it, the land gets to equilibrium pretty quickly. The oceans are lagging behind. And so we may have close to double the amount of warming we've already experienced already committed in the system. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, an, that's a very important thing. But I, there's two... Two points I want to take from this. One is that, yeah, even if we stop things today, there are going to be effects we can change. And two, many people think climate change is is all based on predictions and models in the future, but it's happening now. It's based on data you can measure. And even if, you know, a senator brings a snowball into into the Senate— the point is that, this, you know, you make measurements of the ocean that are unambiguous. It doesn't matter whether it's cold today in Boston and, oh, my God, there's no global warming because it's, we're having a cold winter. They're, they're, they're real measurements that show you exactly what's happening unambiguously. It's not model-dependent. It's not consensus-dependent. It's not politically dependent. It's happening. There's, a, there's always that, that question is constant and it's one of the questions that I believe that both answers is correct. You know, mm. there's a there's a show, Glenn Beck, yeah, uh, which is a right wing show. He's a Mormon, mm. uh, has a very religious following. And I've gone on that show uh-huh. and I've talked with him. And Tommy Smothers, uh-huh. of the Smothers brothers, who was a huge hero of mine, I mean uh-huh. he still is, big influence on me. I was on a TV show with him. And Tommy Smothers turned and ripped me to pieces Uh and said, you went on Glenn Beck. 
<laughs> you went on Glenn Beck. You gave him legitimacy by being on that show. And I said, yes, and I'm the only person who's ever said on that show, there is no God. Okay. I went on that show and I told the truth as I saw it. He said, it doesn't matter that you told the truth. He can now say that you were on that show. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden that gives him some legitimacy. You need to pick what shows you go on. He said, if Hitler had a talk show, you would go on. And I'd say, yeah, I would. And then I'd try to tell the truth as I saw. I mean, but I believe Tommy Smothers is 100% right. And I believe I'm 100% right. It's just a call that you have to make. I think there's one thing wrong with what Tommy Smothers said, is that somehow that Penn Gillette being on a show gives it legitimacy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, did, I did try to make that point. I did try to make that point and say I'm really not that important, Tommy. But um, having said that, in, in, this is a call you have to make. Sure, of course. I've done Exactly. Who do you debate? Who do you not debate? Who'd... Now, let me, let's end, because I want to ask you, what would you say about a profession where people lie, are paid to lie for a living. What would you say about that? I mean, and pick pick the profession where that's done the most. (laughs) Political consultancy. There you go. Okay, you're safe. (laughs) I am safe. Because he's paid to lie for a living as a magician. (laughs) But only after I say I'm lying, which might make a huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. Makes a huge moral difference. Look, I would love to talk to both of you for forever. I'm so happy to bring the two of you together. Here we are. Both of whom, both of you, for better or worse, I love. And so thank you for being here. Did we give each other legitimacy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's an interesting question. I, I would I would worry about your following now. No, <laughs> I mean the thing the thing about the relationship between populism and demagoguery is that they are they need one another. It's a it's a paras, mutually parasitic. You, you, there's a wonderful phrase I, I wrote down of yours. You said populist sentiments is an element in which demagogues swim. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> because because you know look. If you're poor, if you're out of work, if you're, um, you know, disenfranchised uh, by by society, you're not really fully participating. You can't get access to all the social goods that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are important in society. You, you're in a very enfeebled position. So mm-hmm. if, to imagine the masses getting together and rising up as a, a populist whole is, is a bit of a myth. Mm-hmm. It takes a demagogue to come along and say to these people, you're in trouble, and I know the answer to it. Yeah. If you will vote for me or, or follow me or rise up with me, then I'm going to solve all your problems for you. This is the demagogue. This is not the person who is going to you know, solve their problems uh, uh, easily because nobody yeah. can, but, but he's going to promise that he can do it, okay? Yeah. And, and this is where you get uh, uh, populism really depending upon the, the demagogue to get itself going and to make a big difference. And that can really rock the boat a lot. I talked about the two groups and the, and the, you know, the portion in between. Yes. When you get uh, populism upsurging as we're getting in, uh, in Europe today, uh, that really does shift things in that center ground in a way which is very destabilizing. The trouble is that the lack of depth in the discussion, the lack of information. Um, part of the problem is that our press, you know, the more responsible newspapers, newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian newspaper, uh, independent newspaper here, who try to discuss the issues and explore them a little bit and get the facts out there for people. They're read by very, very few people, relatively speaking. And it's it's uh, social media and it's, it's popular programming that gets out 
slogans. So instead of yeah. analysis, you get slogans. Instead of proper policies worked out, you you you, you just you get, get tweets. You just get tweets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this this is very corrupting of the process and very easy to capture by anybody who has a knack for getting the right tweets or the yeah. right slogans out there. I've always had this feeling that art and science are not really any different. Yeah. You know, they're, they're different parts of the same animal. And um, the Victorians felt that instinctively. You know, if you look at um, you know, the Crystal Palace, 1851, it was yeah. the works of all nations. It wasn't arts and science brought together. It mm. was just works. And uh, thanks to the glorious Prince Albert. Mm-hmm. And the Victorians generally, if you look at all the great scientists, um, they're generally musicians, uh, almost without fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't see the distinction. All the great photographers, I'm a passionate collector of Victorian photography, especially the stereoscopic yeah, stuff. Sure. Yeah. All those guys are artists and scientists, and they have to be because mm-hmm. they're working in a medium that requires incredible knowledge of chemistry and physics. They also are creating art, creating yeah. portraits, landscapes, beautiful things, and they don't even think that there's a distinction. So that's how I am, you know, and I resisted the 20th century concept that you have to be one or the other. And they try to split us and they succeeded for a while. I think that was bad. And I think now we're seeing a coming together, a rejoining of art and science in someone like um, Matt Taylor, for instance, who's Mm -hmm. the PI of another NASA mission, the Rosetta mission. You expect to meet this boffin guy who's (laughs) one of the most successful scientists of our time. He's a heavy metal uh, okay. Phenomenon, you know, he's got Einstein tattooed here and <laughs> Lemmy tattooed on the other side, you know, and he's he's a, as much passionate about his music as he is about his 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 work, you know, his science and his engineering. So that to me is lovely. I, I think that's a healthy thing. We're all coming together and realizing that we're human beings. We're supposed to be complete human beings. We're supposed to have all those sides to us. Otherwise, we're not complete. What's the biggest surprise about the solar system itself? Is that, is that it's it's Typical or not typical, that it's unique or not unique, uh, based on what you, you know, that and what we've seen now from exoplanets. And, uh. Well, I would, I would give you two responses. One is that from the exploration of the solar system, this amazing enterprise you know, stretches back 50 years now, even 55, mm-hmm. going on 60 years since the earliest missions to the planets, just how rich nature is. Yeah. That every place we've gone, it just knocks blows our doors off. Whenever, every time I've, I've learned about the discovery of a new planetary system, almost every time I've discovered that we thought our conventional wisdom told us what couldn't happen, happens. Yeah. Giant planets in, in the inner part of the solar system exactly. and all and these that's things the we other, didn't think could happen. The other thing I was going to say is then from what we've learned about exoplanet systems, we've learned that our solar system is very atypical. Yeah. It's, right? Everyone always... And that's, it, again, what, not what we thought. Yeah, we, we had a great little tidy logical story of why you should have rocky planets on the inside and gas yeah. giants on the yeah. outside. Yeah, it and sounded so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nature, you know, is just so amazing. The imagination of nature is so much greater than the imagination of humans, which is why we have to keep exploring. Why we can't just have theoretical physicists like me in rooms, because we come up, if we figured out what's happening, the picture we have would not be the picture of the universe. We have to look outward because it keeps surprising us. We need the exploration. We need the explorers like you and the missions that you develop. We I need think. the data. Yeah, the data. And that's the basis of science, even, I know even for theoretical theorists, physics. Data is a four-letter word. No, 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 no. <laughs> for me, I mean, that's what guides theorists. And I, at yeah. least I'm an old-fashioned kind of yeah. theoretical physicist. That if, it, if it, the data, it doesn't matter whether it's elegant or beautiful or pretty. What matters is it correspond to reality. And the only way to know is to look out and find it. The major interest that I have is this stereoscopic um, 
<laughs> side of everything. You know, I had this passion for 3D yeah. stereoscopy of all kinds. It's and nice of course, to be surrounded by it here. Yeah, anyway. here we have in, <laughs> around us all sorts of stereoscopy, starting from about 1838 um, onwards. And of course, stereoscopy was huge in the 1850s, which yeah. is the great boom. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where my heart is. But I apply everything that I learned from the 1850s to astro photography so you, you just all the time you see nothing there's nothing new under the sun yeah since charles wheatstone yeah <laughs> who discovered the principle so yeah. all you need is a baseline and yeah. in astronomy uh, and especially with all these probes that go out and yeah. get close to objects you can normally get what you need to to, to take an amazing stereoscopic picture of something uh, i you know well actually i we have one of your books here but uh, and and I know a bunch of 3D books. Do you, have you produced a 3D book of astronomy, of, of, of astronomical images? Well, Mission Moon 3D the, is all about um, the Apollo 11, yeah. uh, the Apollo missions and the whole space race, about the, the Russians too. So that's the closest we've come to an actual you, astronomy you did, book. I've never, I haven't seen any 3D pictures of Pluto yet. Is, is there a, oh, there is one, yeah. I was able to get it. Wow. That was my great scoop. You know, yeah. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, oh, you haven't seen that? Okay, no. well, I'll show you. Uh, uh, but, yeah, you, you just need a baseline. And this um, probe is flying um, by, thousands of miles an hour past this object called Pluto, yeah. which until now has been a white dot yeah. in the distance. And what you get is a picture from this point, and then it moves on, you get sure. a picture from the next point, and so you have your baseline. It's how, like the, how, how far a baseline, do you know? How far? It would be tens of thousands of miles. Uh-huh. Quite a bit, but it's yeah. it's a few thousand miles away. Yeah, sure, it sure. Tends, yeah, it tends yeah. A thousand probably, miles away. And the speed it's going, you you have to you know snap those pictures relatively quickly. Cause yeah, which is what they do. Yeah, I mean it's it's a kind of nail biting thing that New Horizons does yeah. because he, most of these missions it's very different from most of the NASA missions which go around things. You know, like the yeah. Rosetta mission, yeah. they go there, yeah. they get into a position next to it, and yeah. they more or less orbit these yeah. Yeah. objects. New Horizons doesn't do that. It just whizzes straight past. So everything has to happen. Everything has to happen in a few minutes. Yeah. And the the <laughs> the tension, the the drama in that is colossal. Because oh, yeah. if you mess up, there will never ever, ever be, be another, another chance. chance. And you've been waiting for yeah. decades. Yeah, for twelve <laughs> years you've waited yeah. for that moment. So it's incredible to watch it unfold. And the moment when you first see that image is, is incredible. Rosemary's Baby was a movie exactly about that, right? About satanic rituals and infants and and things going on that she wasn't quite aware of. And and I'm wondering if that movie had an impact on... Do you, do you Have you ever thought about that? I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I, I don't remember it coming up in a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I read a lot of medical records, sure. therapy notes, and mm-hmm. I could see what the patient and the therapist were talking about. Okay. And I don't remember a lot of, gee, I just went to the movies. Well, and, they may not. I'm just know. wondering if, but you know, when things are, when things are popular, and that, I mean, that's why I actually wanted to go into the alien thing because, you know, there was this another wave of repressed memories or or invented memories. Uh, psycho- induced again by psychologists often of of alien abduction. Yes, and um. And then at, when there's one person, there suddenly seems to be many, and they all have similar stories. And one can't help but think what's what's bubbling in the background of society, whether it's from a movie or from a popular book, ends up also, even if it isn't implanted by a individual like a therapist, but implanted by society, that yeah. people can change their memories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, you're calling to my mind the... Uh... 
The Exorcist. Yeah. The Exorcist did lead to a whole bunch of people starting to think that they were possessed by the Mm -hmm. devil. And they started displaying some of those symptoms and... Well, and but also, you know, what's interesting to me is people often say, well, you know, if it was just one person, I wouldn't believe it. But there's so many people that are independently coming up with the same thing, therefore it must be believable. But there's that sense of independence is a fallacy. It isn't there because everyone's subject to the same news. For example, when people report on what the aliens that abducted them look like, they all look the same. Yes. Now, it's there's two possibilities for that. One, they're really there. Or is it amazing that they all look like aliens that were shown on the cover of a magazine at one point? And and so those things must have an impact. One thing that interested me about you, given that it looked seemed to me that you're a tinkerer, built you like you've this pat this is patented, right? It's your yeah, it's, I'm yeah. an inventor. I love yeah, it. Yeah. I sit in my little workshop and I fiddle around and make stuff. Now, but but I wonder. That's what surprised me because as a if I understand your astronomical work, it's theoretical, right? Mm, no, not really. not really. No, I was ex- an experimental astronomer. My PhD is about spectroscopy, uh-huh. look, looking at movements of lines. But and, not building spectroscopy. Yeah, yeah, I built my spectrometer. Oh, 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 I you built did? the whole bit. Yeah, I, I, I built the, the spectrometer, the coelostat that went with it to direct the light into it, and I built the electronics, very crude electronics, in the 1970s, which processed the information. No, it was oh. it was a oh, purely oh, oh yeah, it was experimental PhD. But uh, you have to bring some theory. Of course, into, of course. But I figure out what you're Okay, at. that makes more sense. I just mm. seemed to me that, given everything else I knew about you, that I would have been surprised if your science wasn't involved in in building and and and, and including the electronics to some extent. Yeah, I hated it. I <laughs> I hated my electronics because it was very crude and didn't always work. You know, well, what about the electronics of the guitar, which I understand you <laughs> wired differently? Yeah. Well, how did that come about? Well, I had my dad. See, my dad's an electronics engineer, so oh. I really had a great start there. Oh, he taught okay. me about everything. He taught me what series and parallel meant. Uh-huh. And uh, I wasn't as good as he was ever. You know, he just lived and breathed uh, electric currents and oh, you're PDs lucky. and stuff. Yeah. Um, but he taught me that. So it makes very good sense that we rewire the guitar well we wired the guitar in a way that was different from anyone else at the time you know in the in the 50s and 60s when uh, before we really had space flight and Mm -hmm. we used telescopes to look out across the solar system and the the scientists of the day looked and they couldn't find any oceans anywhere yeah and the earth is unique it turns out uh the earth is unique it's but it's a weirdo. It wears its oceans on the outside. Oceans are common, but they're on the inside. Same, yeah. And the interesting thing about those oceans, and I've written a, a couple of scientific papers on this, is the, that you don't, the, the concept of a habitable zone is very geocentric. Of course. Right? Warm, liquid water inside of worlds that can, in principle, um, uh, seed the development of biology mm-hmm. can take place anywhere in the solar system, even at Pluto with a surface temperature of 400 Fahrenheit, minus 400 Fahrenheit. Um, if that ocean is really there, as we strongly suspect, um, it could be an abode for life. So it actually changes our perception again that we should not be so geocentric. We should it's not be so myopic of, or, or so solipsistic in the sense that we assume we are what 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 that we are necessarily typical the, or, precisely the copernican revolution continues yeah, yeah exactly it continues in every way out outside and inside and you know in fact 
what you just said is, is true not just for Pluto and not just for the planets. What we're learning on Earth is that it could be that there's a lot more life underneath the surface of the Earth than above. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's deep it's biosphere. Think, and it's so amazing. We live in a time when, when we're just discovering that, when people kind of feel like, oh, well, we know everything about the Earth. We don't. We don't. It, the, 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 the nature of life, even on our home planet, is still ripe for discovery. And if you just put a little more thought into it, you think about these these ocean worlds that have their oceans on the interior, in many ways, they're actually better suited to the development of life. They don't require a magnetosphere for protection. Yeah. Uh, they don't care if they're catastrophic planetary impacts yeah. because they're up hundreds of kilometers on the surface. They're not going to damage the well, ocean. As, as, and as people have said in the origin of life on Earth, it's, it meant most, many people think it originated deep in the ocean. And one of the reasons would be that it's at least protected from some but this impacts. is much more protection. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, those worlds don't even care if there's a star around. You could have interstellar planets Planets, yeah that have been ejected but interior is still warm and having an ocean you don't care about stellar flares you don't care about nearby supernovae they're actually pretty hospitable for the development of of life whether i mean be horrible for astronomy because there's a roof over your head yeah exactly right i was just going to say the astronomers there would say wow look at the look at the universe it's full of water that's there is no universe (laughs) yeah it's just all their universe would be their water yeah yeah in, in the, the, the 17th, 18th century, there were people who said, let's apply uh, standards of scientific rationality to a much wider range of subjects. Let's, let's do history on scientific principles. Let's think about society and political organization on scientific principles. Let's try and understand human nature in that way. And so th- th- this was trying to, to think in an, an orderly and disciplined sure. way about things. And it had tremendous consequences. I mean, you think of the outcome of the Enlightenment in the great changes politically and and, uh, socially that followed it. The advent, for example, of democracy and of human rights and civil liberties and uh, the much wider spread of education and the refutation of the claims of absolute monarchy and and of religion. So these were good things. And there were, of course, people much later, people like Horkheimer and Adorno and others in the Frankfurt School who said, ah, the Enlightenment was to blame for Nazism and Stalinism because it privileged kind of organized bureaucracy and bureaucracy goes rotten after a time, blah, blah. They're wrong about that. But anyway, (laughs) that's a different story. But the people who objected to Enlightenment uh, rationality Uh were were, um, the romantics who said, If you have reason dominating life, then it desiccates life. It it just takes all the color and all the magic and music out of it. And we think, we romantics, we think that it should all be about how we feel and it should be about our connection with the soil or the land or the people or the folk or the this, that and the other. Now, I like to point out that we would not for one minute like to dispense with the poetry and the music of romanticism, Mm. but we could certainly do without the politics and sociology (laughs) and anthropology of romanticism, because that's where nationalism and Nazism Mm. and racism and all that stuff come from. Mm -hmm. I mean, talking about, you know, our adherence to the land or to the blood or to our ancestors or, you know, the race or something, you know, all, all that is pernicious and we've seen the effect of that. So the anti-rationalist reaction to the Enlightenment produced all these evils which really, you know, uh, um, caused so many deaths. And think of the first, especially the Second World War. Um, And it illustrates, gives you this marvellous historical illustration of how if you are just irrationally anti-rational and you're going to privilege all sorts of other things that dominate the way you act and think about the world you're going to get into trouble. Because the rationalism of the Enlightenment itself 
never ever claimed that reason should operate at the expense of emotion yes. or at the expense of those things in life that give it its sense of value and, and sentiment. In fact, it's so interesting to notice that in the Enlightenment itself, the idea of sentiment, the idea of the importance of, of romance in life, the idea that our emotions are important motivators for our choices in life. David Hume, one of the great figures in Reason the Enlightenment. Reason is a slave of yeah, passion. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the, in other words, the result was that um, the, the Enlightenment drive to think more rationally, uh -huh. not at the expense of our emotions, but just more rationally, was read by those who were frightened of what reason might expose about the inadequacies of absolute monarchy and religious yeah. tyranny, you know, to, to do this black and white thing. Oh, all, all reason is bad. When you say that our voting system isn't democratic, maybe you can explain what you mean by that, because okay. I know what you, I, I know, I think I know what you're talking sure. about. Okay. So for the House of Representatives in the US and for the House of Commons in the UK, we use what's called a plurality system or mm. first past the post system. Yeah. Okay. So just to give you an example, supposing you've got a congressional district with a hundred voters mm -hmm. and 10 people stand for election mm -hmm. and eight of them get 10 votes each and mm -hmm. one gets nine votes and the last gets 11 votes. Yeah. He's the guy who goes to Congress, yeah. Okay? Yeah. representing 11 people out of 100. Yeah. The other 89 are completely unrepresented. They have yeah. no, there's no representation there. And the, from this simple fact, which shows that our systems of, of ele election are undemocratic and by the way, the elections to the Senate, you know, are proportional to the number of states, not the number of people in yeah, them. Yeah. Then the Electoral College, which exists, you know, to stop some idiot, ignorant, bloviating yeah, it didn't work Ooh, very well. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so you can see that all the other institutions of the of the U.S. are even more remote than mm -hmm. that. But, but right there uh, in the system for of representation, you've got a very distorting voting system. Leave aside even the fact of gerrymandering. Yeah. To 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 get a, a more proportional. Uh, system of election, which really does reflect the variety of preferences and choices, will probably result in the failure of the two-party system. Um, in almost all countries that have the first-past-the-post-voting system have a two-party system, and power swings between the two parties. And, and the result of that is that whoever happens to control the party, the clique, the group at the top mm -hmm. of that party, or the activists in the country who uh, you know, determine party policy, are the people who run the country. Whereas if you have proportional representation, you tend to get coalition governments. Mm -hmm. So you can look at places like Germany and, and others where they have good uh, systems of proportional representation, or you look at places like Italy and Israel where they have bad ones. So mm -hmm. in the bad ones, you get very small minorities over-influencing policy. But, but where you've got the right kind of system and it really works, what tends to happen is that it drains politics out of government. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, instead of government being highly yeah. politicized, all the politics happens in elections and then in the negotiations between the different parties who are going to constitute the coalition. And then, and then you, so, so, so you get a kind of consensus emerging and then there's government and government should be for all the people, people, not just the people who voted for a particular party. That's what this says, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that, that's what it says in the preamble <laughs> yeah. to the U.S. Constitution, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. the people, the whole people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's incredibly important that we should look at, at the way that uh, our system has, in fact, evolved, de facto, mm -hmm. in, in practice evolved, and how recent events have kind of ripped the cover off it and said, look, it's just dysfunctional. A lot of people uh, will say to you, well, if you take religion away, then what are people left with? What do they believe in? What gives them their morality and yeah, their, sure. their sense of meaning in life? And I say to them, look, th th there is a fantastic 
a much better alternative. And this is humanism. Yeah. Uh, humanism has its roots in the, the uh, philosophical thinking of Socrates, Aristotle, and others in the classical tradition. Mm -hmm. It doesn't predicate the existence of a God. That yeah. Our morality is not something dictated from outside human experience. Instead, humanism says this, Let's think for ourselves. Let's take responsibility for thinking for ourselves about how we're going to treat other people, uh, how we're going to relate to them, how we're going to live together in communities, how we're going to do the things that we know. I mean, because we know that the vast majority of people don't like to be cold and lonely and hungry and in pain and, and deprived of possibilities and so on. We, we know, we, we've got, we, we just have this, uh, um, you know, basis of knowledge about what conduces to human flourishing. Let's work for that. Let's work for that together. You know, it's not about brownie points getting into heaven or something. It's because we're human beings and we have sympathies. Mm. That is the, the, the basis of humanism. And when you, when you start to, to think about the sorts of things that people have said, when you read, I don't know, again, mm -hmm. Aristotle or Seneca yeah. or, yeah. you know, or anybody in, in the great tradition of thought over the last couple of thousand years who've addressed this question of how we can make lives meaningful and significant, how we can uh, foster relationships, how things like our intimacies, our love, our family lives, our community engagements and so on can, can really make life feel good and rich for us. When we, when we understand how art, music, learning, uh, endeavor mm -hmm. are, 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 are meaningful, then we can understand that it's all here in life between the cradle and the grave. You yeah. don't have to reach outside it for something that's going to give you meaning because you can create meaning if you will do it, if you will take that effort. I mean, one, one good example of this is the so-called existentialist tradition. Sure. You know, people like to wave their arms and say, Jean-Paul Sartre and yeah. Albert Camus and so yeah. on. But you know, they had a couple of good points to make. Oh, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, Camus <laughs> wouldn't describe himself as an existentialist because he fell out with Sartre. But he would yeah. say he was, a, he was a, an absurdist. Mm. What they both agree on is this. You know, we don't get born for a reason. There's yeah. no purpose here. We're not sent into the world yeah. by some great headmaster in the mm -hmm. sky yeah. who's given us a job to do or anything. Mm -hmm. We just find ourselves in the world mm -hmm. and, and in a, a set of historical and social conditions. And it's up to us to accept the fact that we have to make certain kinds of choices for ourselves and that meaning is possible for us if we create it. Yeah. Camus has this marvellous essay, I'm sure most of the uh, people listening to this know it, uh, an essay called The Myth of Sisyphus, uh -huh. where he, just, he says, okay, so think about that myth, that Greek myth about Sisyphus who has to roll the boulder up yeah. a hill and he's never going to get to the top and this is going to go on for eternity. Can his existence be meaningful to him? Mm. And he gives the answer, yes. yes absolutely. Now that is powerful, that's, that's pretty damn Deep. It totally affected me. Yeah. And, and in fact, I ended, a lot, ended one of my books with referring back to that in my book yeah. about Adam, because as a young person, that, the realization that you can make the meaning in your own world, in a world that's absurd in, in a general sense, is profoundly important, I think. Sure. Well, that's it. That's that resource. So, so humanism, which is about, you know, our, our relationships, but also about our individual responsibilities um, to respect the meanings that other people are creating in their lives. Obviously, you know, that the, the, there is a, a question of where we draw our lines. You know, they say an open mind is a great thing. Well, not so open that your brains yeah, fall out. Okay, yeah. so, all right. Yeah. That, that in, in the case of, of our ethical lives, mm -hmm. we've got to think about the sorts of lines that uh, we, we don't regard as being crossable. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are cruel, who are harmful, who are greedy, who yeah. are selfish, who do bad things to other people, 
people, we're not going to accept that. But what we are going to accept is that there are as many ways that lives can be good or meaningful to people as there are people to live them. And none of us has a right to say to anybody else, no, you're not allowed to do that or see that or think that or feel that or act that way. That's that's their business. Okay, so here's so he so he influenced you, but nevertheless, he, he told you this, and then you tried to lie to him. <laughs> and you talk about me, the busts. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell? Why don't you tell the story? It's such a good story. <laughs> well, uh, Randy was very proud of mm. having this bust. Yeah. of Houdini, uh-huh. uh, and it was from a uh, museum in Niagara Falls. Oh, okay, and it had burned down. Oh, okay. And Randy had the only copy of this bust of Houdini mm-hmm. that was very, very famous. He was very, very proud of it. And this is a fairly recent story. This is just like 15, maybe 20 years ago, um, but not ancient history. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we were visiting the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, educational foundation, and he had this bust here, and it was all in a case, and very, very proud of it. And uh, Teller and I saw that. And I got an idea. Uh-huh. I got a little idea up my head. So while Teller was talking to Randy, I went off into the other room and made a huge number of phone calls to find someone in Florida uh-huh. who would able to do casting, uh-huh. any sort of casting. Uh-huh. And I found this uh, like B movie company where the people did casting. Now, of course, I have no reason to trust them except I trust everybody. Yeah. So I called them up and said, "Hi, this is Penn. Uh-huh. We're show called Penn and Teller. Um, uh, I want to break into uh, James Randy's." Uh, uh, center for inquiry tonight, mm-hmm. and I want to uh, break into a case and take his <laughs> cast of Houdini and make a copy of it. Uh, can you do that in uh, eight hours? Wow. It's amazing you could find something. <laughs> and uh, they said, Well, you know, I got stuff to do, do and, yeah. and I pulled out the checkbook and kept up in the amount, up in the amount, up in the amount. Until they suddenly found it was more Suddenly stuff. found they had yeah. nothing to do yeah, that yeah, night. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Randy dropped me off at the hotel, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Good night, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> Pick us up for breakfast the next morning. And then I ran back, met them in the parking lot. I'd scoped out the place. Uh-huh. I broke in. Uh-huh. And then I said, we're going to open this case and this is valuable. And we're we're going to make a copy of it. So they have all the plaster of Paris, and there I am with them for you know six hours. Oh my God! <sighs> yeah. But I wanted to make sure I, I didn't yeah. want to lose the bust of Houdini. Yeah, sure. So we then had a uh, a negative. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of it, mm-hmm. and put it back in there and cleaned it yeah. up. And of course, there was plaster of Paris on everything. Everywhere. Newspapers, and we're mopping up and everything else. And I send them off, and then. Um, I run back to the hotel, uh-huh. right? And, <laughs> and I get up and Randy comes and picks me up. We go out to breakfast. Uh-huh. Nothing is nothing, said. Nothing. We go in, go da 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 And then uh, four months later, five months later, Randy comes to visit uh, us in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he comes over to my house and there are um, 30 <laughs> bus Moudini all over my house in gold, in bronze, in plaster. And he goes over to Teller's and they're all over the place. And then he goes backstage and they're all over the place. And nothing is said. Nothing. Nothing is said. I never say, hey, do you like this bus? I never say anything. And Randy at about bus, bus number 70, Randy just goes, fuck you. Oh, does he say that? <laughs> it's kind of quietly. I don't know why he. I, I don't know why. He, no, no. You can get with, these things. Absolutely love. I thought you could get those things in any in any <laughs> airport. <laughs> I, 
I just, you know, I had a few myself. I just... Yeah. Yeah, see, they're everywhere. It's fabulous. Yeah, Randy. And Randy, of course. Randy would not have even said "fuck you" until he'd figured out the whole oh, thing. Yeah, yeah. He had to have the whole oh, thing figured out. You know what I mean? Randy would not say, "How did you do that?" Yeah. That is That's not, not Randy. within Randy's ego. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I had to say, "Yeah, Randy, you know that night." He went, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When was he alone? When could when, he? When you to, yeah, that's right. Well, you have to figure <laughs> this one out. Okay. <laughs> did it just was a textbook, or did you discover you had to do something? Dramatic in order to make to to be where you wanted to be. It was there was there any moment not dramatic but Herculean. Oh, really? We had to do uh, a lot of homework to pin down Pluto's orbit. We had to go back and take glass uh, uh, plates from the 1930s, astronomical plates, mm-hmm. and reanalyze them with modern techniques to increase the arc length and and drop the error bars on the known position of Pluto. Oh, wow. We had to track our spacecraft with a, a technique uh, that involves quasars um, as distant reference frames to make sure that we knew where it was and where it was going. Yeah. We had to take images on approach of Pluto against the star field and ship them home and analyze them quickly to determine the difference but down to the pixel. Where is Pluto compared to where it should be if we're in the right place? And from the difference, compute homing burns that would correct and not only correct our position to arrive at the right place. We had to arrive after nine and a half years within 450 seconds because the spacecraft doesn't actually see the data from its instruments. It can't tell I'm, 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 okay. I'm off. I'm not okay. looking at the target. <laughs> right. You take a picture After of all that. Empty space. Exactly. Yeah. Or even, you know, half. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the timing, because everything's moving, the spacecraft's going mm. 32,000 miles an hour. Pluto's going, you know, in its heliocentric yeah. orbit at yeah. many thousands of miles per hour. Yeah. All the satellites are rotating in their yeah. orbits at speeds of like yeah. a kilometer per second. And the spacecraft knows its position, and it has an ephemeris. Um, It can compute for where all the targets are. Mm -hmm. And based on knowing the time and the time of arrival and where it is and where those things ought to be, it does the trigonometry and points, and points again and points again as it flies through. But it's doing it what we call open loop. It's not seeing if those images are actually centered. And so we had to very accurately navigate. Yeah, you had 450 seconds error maximum after... Nine and a half years. It's just uh, yeah. that's it's amazing. For a while, I guess you had to separate, right? I mean, you had to. You left astronomy to do music. I did. I always thought astronomy benefited from me leaving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I did. <laughs> but you came back, and was it hard to come back. back? Was it hard? Well, well, I was never that far away. Yeah. Okay. You always honest. sort of academically, it was hard. Yes, yeah. it was. It was tough, and yeah. it was a mountain that I nearly didn't manage to climb. To be honest. Uh, I was fortunate in having Michael Rowan Robinson, mm-hmm. um, who was the head of astrophysics at the time, about yeah. to retire. I was one of his last projects. Oh, really? Yeah, but he rang me up when he'd heard that I was thinking of rejoining this, the, this astronomical community, which had become astrophysics, yeah. uh, and said, if you, want to do, if you want to finish your PhD, I am here at the place where you started it, and I will be your supervisor. Oh, that was wonderful. So it was incredible. I mean, my heart kind of stopped. Really, and I dropped everything. I dropped for a year. I didn't do any anything, pretty any, much, any except yeah, except just sit in the little office in Imperial College, back where I'd started. Yeah, picking up the pieces of my PhD. It was tough. 
Yeah, it would and, be really bad. Yeah, and they had to, I mean, they couldn't make it easy for me because that's yeah. not what PhDs are about. Yeah, yeah. PhDs are about making it fucking hard yeah, for yeah, 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 it's supposed to be <laughs> happy to get it over with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> every PhD student has to want to give up yeah. or else he hasn't. Yeah, kind of I almost earned his, You know what that's like. Well, you know, I think, yeah, because if you didn't, you might be too comfortable being a PhD student. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yes. I was hard, and I think three distinct times I tried to give up, but I had good friends. One of them is Garrick Israelian, who runs Starmus. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he took me away for a week and taught me how to read papers. Again? <laughs> Scientific yeah, papers. Yeah. He re-educated me on how, <laughs> on how to actually get the information out. And that was incredibly valuable to me. And Patrick Moore was... Yeah incredibly supported he just kept saying you can do it Brian of course you can do it of course you can <laughs> I went Patrick I can't my brain's gone <laughs> I've been playing music for 30 years I can't do this of course you can one of the things that that you understand or that we understand from studying the geologic past is that the time scale of climate change you know most of the IPCC studies and the UN stuff um, people look at 2100 or 2050 yeah. yeah 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 they might go out to 2150 yeah yeah right but remember that, you know, of the atmospheric CO2, so when we burn fossil fuels, about 60% of the CO2 stays in the air, about 40% goes into the ocean and the land. That 60% that goes into the air, half of that is still going to be there a thousand years from now. That's of vital importance. I think that if it's one thing people should understand. It's so. really important. People don't think about it this way, but, you know, nuclear waste, mm -hmm. high-level nuclear waste in a thousand years, mm -hmm. about 1% of the radioactivity is left yeah. because most of it has short half-lives. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's what makes it so nasty. Yeah, exactly. That's why the stuff you worry about is the stuff that has short half-lives. Right. So a thousand years from now, nuclear waste, 1%. Yeah. CO2, 50% in a thousand years. And, Twenty, and, and probably about a third of it will still be here 20,000 years from now. So the timescales are really long. We are changing the earth not just for a few generations, but for tens of thousands of generations of humans, if humans are so lucky to, to, to stay on this yeah. earth for that long. So that's, you know, hard to get your head around. Absolutely. And it, 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 it'll, it'll become relevant. What many people say um, is, well, why, you know, maybe this is a problem, but we have economic problems. We have other problems. Well, let's not worry about it now. Let's worry about it in 50 years. And the problem is we, if you keep dumping it in there, Dealing with in 50 years becomes so much harder than, you know, we've skirted it. But I want to make it clear to people who, who haven't heard of this issue exactly what the change is in greenhouse gases. We really haven't said what the impact of human industrial activity is on that global historical timescale, just so people could put in perspective. We skipped it. And I think, I think it's worth you spending a few minutes just giving sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. So, so 20,000 years ago, mm. last glacial maximum, we have a kilometer of ice where we're standing in Boston, Cambridge, mm -hmm. um, uh, carbon dioxide levels were about 180 parts per million. Okay. The pre-industrial, the interglacial, uh -huh. about 280 parts per million. And we've seen that cycle periodically over the last few couple million years. When Dave Keeling started measuring CO2 in 1958, yeah. it was already at about 315 parts per million. Uh -huh. So up about 35 parts per million from the pre-industrial level. Uh -huh. Today, we're about 412 parts per million. So we are really going into completely unexplored territory. That, ha that, that has not been seen on Earth in at least the last few million years. At least probably four or five million years. And by mid-century, we're going to be well above 500 parts per million. And 
Now we're talking about maybe 30 or 35 million years. Mm-hmm. So, so we're doing something extraordinary. And, and it's really important to realize that, that when people talk about, they see parts per million, who the heck cares about parts per million? That the natural cycle has not, has not anywhere approached this level. That's and, right. and, and moreover, as the natural cycle has varied over that, climate has varied tremendously. It's not as if, it's not as if, uh, sure, people can say, well, it didn't ever varied much, but who cares? But oh, it varied a small amount and climate changed dramatically. We're doing something that has never been, an experiment that's never been performed, and at least in the, in, in the last few million years. That's exactly right. And, and we can look at the paleo climate record mm-hmm. to get a pretty good sense of how sensitive the Earth's climate system is to changes in CO2. Yeah. Because we have CO2 reconstructions yeah, yeah, and yeah. we know how much the temperature yeah. changed. Yeah. And the answer seems to be that the sensitivity, that is, per doubling of CO2, you get a surface temperature change of about three or four degrees. Mm-hmm. Now, what we've experienced over the last hundred years is only about, you know, maybe one and a half to two degrees per doubling uh-huh. because we've only warmed by a little more than a degree and we haven't yet doubled CO2, right? Yeah, but we've got the oceans. And- but that's it. <laughs> so you have the oceans. So the other half is still coming. Yeah, yeah the other so, half. So that's probably the resolution of that. So it's probably about three degrees per doubling. And just understand, three degrees doesn't sound like that much. But remember the difference between the last glacial maximum, sea level 130 meters lower mm-hmm. You know, North America, half of North Mm. America covered with ice, the ice coming down Mm. to New York City. Completely different world, right? Uh That was five degrees lower, colder, right? So So we're talking about probably in the next 100 to 150 years being five degrees warmer. It's extraordinary. But what they did do is expose us. We had Mm -hmm. the fortune to be raised in New York City in this context, right? Yes, it was dangerous. Yes, it was, you know, there were riots and all. Yes, all that, that all actually did happen. But we're embedded in quite a repository of cultural institutions. Sure. And so every weekend we did something different. Yeah. Uh, It was, we went to the opera, we went Mm -hmm. to a play, we Mm -hmm. went to a musical, we went to the ball game. Oh, we even went weird. to a hockey game, went to the art museum, went to the zoo. Wow. And each of these weekends, it might have been two weekends a month. It yeah. felt like every weekend. Oh, but, that's great. And these were, this was exposure to oh, things trained adults do. Yeah, yeah That's yeah. beyond just the doctor, lawyer, Indian yeah, chief yeah, sure. options. Yeah, And my brother ultimately became an artist, having been moved by our visits to art museums. And he ended up going to the High School of Music and Art, got his MFA, and, mm-hmm. and now uh, teaches art and paints. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, and, and my sister, she's the big sellout. She <laughs> yeah. she went into corporate America. Oh, well. Yeah. Someone had to. I she guess. left school, but then came back and got her MBA. And, and um, so, but so, my point is, we, it enabled us, it empowered us yeah. to follow our own drummer. Yeah, they sort of planted seeds and you and you got to decide which ones grew. Correct. And then once they saw these seeds germinate, yeah. they would then feed uh, so uh, when, what's the nourish them. So my best example of okay. this, best example, I think you would appreciate this uh, as an academic and mm-hmm. someone who's a voracious reader, uh, it in middle school, mm-hmm. my mother not knowing anything about astrophysics, she would she would visit bookstores oh. and go to the remainder shelf. Okay. 
all right, and just find any book yeah, that yeah. said math or science on yeah, it, yeah, yeah, or the universe, of which there are many, it turns yeah, out. Yeah, sure. And she'd bring them home, and these books cost 50 cents, 25 yeah. cents. Oh, that's great. I had the largest library of any middle schooler oh, in my school. Oh, that's so nice. And uh, also brain teaser books, anything yeah, yeah, that was yeah. just fun things to do with your brain uh-huh. rather than just hang out in the street. Oh. And so I probably still have books, some of those books on my shelf. Sure. They all have some marker uh, yeah, line yeah, across yeah. the yeah, yeah. the binding yeah. saying that it has been marked down. Yeah. I don't. I haven't lately seen remainder shelves much yeah. in bookstores. I used to go looking to see if my own books weren't on them. <laughs> <laughs> the notion for many, many years was quite different about what memory was. Uh, you know, going back to ancient times where people thought you sort of memories and knowledge were was intrinsic. And you were just somehow probing what was already there and then and never sort of creating memories or memories as dynamic. And and then the idea that memories were like tape recorders where they weren't already there, but once they happened, they were in your mind and it was a matter of just going to the right data location and calling them out. And and what you began to show and have showed, of course, abundantly since then, is that that's not the case at all, that that memories are not static and, and, and maybe didn't weren't even there in the first place. Well, yes. I mean, and that tape recorder, video recorder, you know, model of memory is still sadly uh, widely embraced by some lay people. Yeah. I think Uh, most people still think memories, you work hard, you get the memory and and that's it. And if it's there, if it's a memory, it must have been, it must have happened. Right. Memory studies, as you said, had been sort of uh, trying to remember the name of, a, of an animal named Z, with the letter Z or, or a series of numbers or facts. And, and you, you began to, your research has involved more stories. Right. What, why do you think you, you were thinking stories versus facts in that sense? What, what, what influenced you to think in those terms? Is it because you were so interested in the way people really work in the real world of, of trying to remember their own stories or what 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 caused you to go in that direction uh well i i i think i know actually good I, okay. you think I think, you know no one told yeah, you this no I, okay. I think i actually know okay uh so there i was you know thinking to myself after that conversation with my lawyer cousin yeah. where um i i thought i want to do something that has some practical applicability something that's more socially relevant um and for briefly, at, around that time, my father had was dying of cancer. Oh, and right. I wished I could work on cancer, but mm-hmm. I couldn't work on cancer because I don't know anything <laughs> about it. I wasn't. I had no skills. Uh-huh. Um, so, but what could I work on that I could be excited about? Well, and then to find out what what excited me, I asked myself, well, what is it you like to talk about? When you're, let's say, at a party, a dinner party or something, and you can talk about whatever you want. Um, what do you talk about? And I found myself often talking about legal situations, legal cases. So this made me think, ah. okay, I want to like maybe combine memory with with legal cases. Well, how about eyewitness memory, accidents, crimes, things like that. That's how I got there. So what's happened in Brazil recently? I won't go through the whole history, of course, but just recently uh, in uh, 2003, uh, they elected uh, Lula da Silva uh-huh. uh, president. He's a uneducated uh, union leader, a very f- a remarkable person. I knew him back in the 90s, followed him closely. He's a very remarkable person, uh, very effective. You don't take my opinion. Uh, the World Bank published a 
study of uh, Brazil in 2016, mm-hmm. May 2016, on uh, which they discussed what they called the Golden Decade, a unique period in Brazil's history under Lula's two terms, 2003 to 2011, uh, a period in which there was remarkable uh, uh, improvement, uh, poverty reduction, enormous poverty reduction, uh, ex- large expansion of ex- inclusiveness, uh, marginalized. Po- Remember, these are very unequal countries, yeah. rich but incredibly unequal, enormous poverty, tremendous resources yeah. wasted, uh, inclusion of uh, people, um, Afro-Brazilians, almost half the population, indigenous people and women brought into educational institutions, a sense of dignity, of commitment. The country just changed. They say it's a remarkable example of uh, development rarely equaled. At the same time, Lula became probably the most respected statesman in the world, a very respected statesman as a voice for the global south, respected everywhere. I remember visiting Brazil. It seemed like, yeah, it seemed okay. like the well, a, a beacon. Yeah, it was in a remarkable period. Well, uh, Brazilian elites couldn't tolerate this. And not only the... Pro- First of all, he was very supportive of establishment institutions. He didn't um, interfere with didn't the wealth robbing yeah. the country. You yeah. know, he didn't. He paid off the debts to the foreign investors. He satisfied the IMF. Uh, he's not a radical. Yeah. Um, his beliefs pretty straight are you just put money in the hands of poor people. That'll take care of things. That's his radicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, for the Brazilian elite who are outlandish, uh, all the Latin American elite, this is intolerable. Furthermore, there's enormous class hatred. Uh, how can this uneducated uh, worker who doesn't even speak proper Portuguese uh, dare to be uh, sitting in the presidential palace, you know, we can, these people have to have humility, uh, we'll take care of them, that sort of thing. That's deeply rooted all throughout Latin America, uh, and Brazil in particular. Anyhow, as soon as he, uh, after, a couple of years after he stepped down, the oil prices dropped and the commodity prices dropped with yeah. China cutting back yeah. development. There's a lot of claims that the improvements under uh, his uh, rule were just uh, illusory. They had, yeah. But the World Bank didn't agree. You look at their analysis, they say that's not true. Uh, in fact, if you look more closely, I've written about this, the and Brazilian economists have written about it. The, it was the mainly the predatory financial institutions who prevented any sensible reaction to this. Every effort that was taken was beaten back, and it did lead to a recession. That gave the opportunity for the soft coup that's been going on since then. The first step was to impeach his successor, Dilma Rousseff, on absolutely derisory grounds. I mean, you look at them, it's not even a joke. And she was impeached by a gang of thieves uh, uh, of a sort you can't even describe. That was the first step. Then comes the next. Just a couple months ago, uh, there was an election coming up in October, October Mm. 2018. Lula was way ahead in the polls. It was pretty clear he was going to win the election. So what they do? Put him in jail, solitary confinement, 25-year sentence, basically a death sentence, prevented from reading newspapers, 
and journals and, crucially, prevented from making a public statement. Not like murderers in death row. Yeah. This is right before the election. Next step, which is, uh, we should look closely because it's a test run for the 2020 election here, yeah. a massive campaign on the social media, which are the main source of information for most of the population. The press is, of course, mostly right-wing, but yeah. these are. But the media campaign is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the lies, the fabrications, the vitriol, you know, the the workers' party, his party, is planning to turn every all the boys into homosexuals. It's going to kill religion. Uh, they're going to uh, put out baby bottles with uh, penises as the uh, nipples, you know, on and on like this. Uh, People believed it, you know. They finally managed just by these means, you know, shut up, silence the guy who's probably going to win, flood uh, the so-called information system with grotesque lies and uh, attacks that can't be responded to. And remember, we're going to see this soon. We're starting to see it already. This is Testron. Uh, they managed to get into office a guy who's the most outrageous of the right-wing fanatics all over the world. Uh, just to illustrate, uh, this is a guy who, when he, he was in the parliament, when he voted for the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, mm-hmm. he dedicated his vote to her torturer. She was a guerrilla tortured by the military regime. He dedicated his vote to her torturer, the general who was in charge of the torture. He supports the military dictatorship, which was vicious, Mm -hmm. but but he criticizes it too because it didn't go far enough. He said it should have, it it was too soft. They should have killed 30,000 people like the Argentines did, the worst of the military dictatorships. He goes back to the 19th century and criticizes the Brazilian cavalry because they didn't do what the Americans did, wipe out the indigenous population. If they'd done that, we wouldn't have these problems today. Uh, in fact, now that he's in office, uh, first of all, he's, his economics advisor is a ultra-right Chicago boy, Pablo yeah. Guedes. His motto is literally privatize everything, sell the country out to mostly foreign investors, uh, Kill, right now, they're killing the social security system, which is not that strong, but something. Uh, hand everything over to the rich and the powerful. Uh, the newest legislation is uh, change the history books so that they don't criticize the military dictatorship. They say it was necessary to protect the country from communism. Uh, he says the whole country has been taken over by what's called cultural Marxism including the right-wing press, uh, the universities. We've got to block that. Science is finished. We don't support that. We don't waste money on that kind of stuff. So, so the Brazilian science is pretty powerful, interesting thing. It was People upcoming. In. So, I mean, uh, this is just indescribable. And it's happening in the most powerful country, important country in uh, Latin America one of the most important in the world, with the strong support of the United States. Very powerful. In fact, this media campaign, you can't prove it, but it has all the fingerprints of uh, 
the people who've been running these things elsewhere. This does uh, um, raise the question of what happens to scientists when they get old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something which is of concern to me and <laughs> even to you. And to me, yeah, yes. yes. Uh, and uh, uh, I think there are three routes. I uh -huh. mean, many of them uh, uh, just do less science, become yeah. administrators yeah. or sink yeah. into torpor yeah. in some form. Yeah. Um, some uh, overreach themselves mm -hmm. um, and go to new fields. Yeah. And uh, uh, Hoyle, Shockley, uh -huh. um, Pauling and yeah. others, yeah. Um, Eddington, uh, they're people who they would still say they're motivated by trying to understand the world, uh -huh. but they no longer get satisfaction from the routine stuff they're good at. Yeah. And they try and do something so, yeah. where they're not experts. Yes. And, yes. of course, Fred Hoyle uh, did this sort of thing in his old age, uh, uh, attacking Darwin and saying yeah. that flu epidemics came in on comets and things oh, like that. Okay. Uh, he did a lot of, so that's the second way. And the third way um, is, of course, um, uh, to go on doing what you're good at <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, realising that your work will be on a plateau and, <laughs> and uh, you won't get better. And I think it's, it's interesting to uh, see why um, it's the case for many artists, certainly painters and composers, that their last works are their greatest. Oh. But you wouldn't say this of many scientists. Yes. The best they could do is say on a plateau. And I think the reason is that if you're, say, a composer, then you're influenced by the uh, uh, musical environment when you're young. Yeah. But thereafter, it's just internal development. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas in science, it's a collective activity. You've got to be able to absorb new techniques and new data, new ideas. Exactly. And that's what we get less good at when we get older. Absolutely. I mean, and, and uh, I mean, it's... There are rare exceptions. Of course, to everything like this, there are exceptions. But, but you know, an example of being, and a most famous example is Einstein, who, who you know, for, was incredibly in tune with what was current at the time. That's right. He, but mm -hmm. then later on sort of refused mm -hmm. to accept, what, yes. or, or at least refused to be in touch with what the, the key experimental things that mm -hmm. were going on. His, yes. his obsession with unifying electricity and magnetism mm -hmm. became an anachronism because already in the 30s we knew there were other forces in nature and it was it was kind of it, it, mm -hmm. it was not the you couldn't unify it was premature to do it, was, it. Yeah. yeah yes but also he he didn't really follow through on the implications of his own theory did yeah, he? I mean, yeah yeah he didn't work on black holes yeah and, uh, and he was in the same place as oppenheimer for 10 years yeah and oppenheimer had uh, uh, done this wonderful paper in 1939, yeah. uh, which was a step towards understanding gravitational collapse. And uh, they never discussed it, I don't think. It's, that's, uh, that is fascinating. Well, it's, and so I guess the idea is to try and, and, and uh, keep an open mind and listen. But it gets harder because mm. I think the other problem... Keep your mind ajar and not completely vacant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, mm. <laughs> but, but also... The more accomplished one is that sometimes the sense one I've seen people get the sense that they should therefore only be working on things that are profound and important. When in fact, most of the time when you're a scientist, you're working on little things that are interesting yep. you and your and and my friend Shelley Gasha calls them pieces of grizzle. But mm. but but so if you if you're always trying to solve grand problems, you yeah. rarely make any progress. At, right, but only cranks and geniuses work on the big problems <laughs> in one go. You've yeah. got to uh, work in a piecemeal way. Yeah. I get the sense of immense respect for Hillary Clinton and what she, you know, in a time when she was, you know, running president and has, was vilified by many. I mean, not just being the first, actually that book was written before she was, she was a candidate, right. uh, but before she got the nomination, which was, which happened after that book. Hillary Clinton, tell me, tell me about it. Just to stick it out and have such a messy history, mm -hmm. which had to do in part with just being the first woman at mm. this and that this, mm. and also trying to have a, a career when her husband had this career. Mm -hmm. 
all the stuff that went into her life, part of which is the exact history of the mm. women's movement, mm. part of which is totally peculiar to the mm. Clintons and what they did. She stuck it out. She st- strode on forward. And whatever else you think about what she did, and now there's mm. this very popular side, oh, my God, she's a terrible candidate. Yeah. She made it normal. And the person who makes stuff normal in this country gets is very adaptable. And yeah. once you get used to something... It's fine. I yeah. remember the first time when Katie Couric became the first yeah. on-air anchor at night, and everyone was going crazy. crazy. It was such a big deal. And 10 minutes later, Diane Sawyer became <laughs> the second one. And everybody was like, well, yeah, of course, okay, it's yeah. what we do. Here it is. And now nobody would ever, no human being would ever think, is that a man or a woman sitting there giving us the news at night? It's just Americans are very adaptable. And now you're seeing it this year. You've got 200 million women thinking about running for president. Yeah. And we'll spend this whole next period, looking and saying, oh, wait a minute, you're doing this here. Are you considering the women too? And how are you treating them? Is it the same all the way along the line? It's going to be very subtle and very strange. And we're going to do another thing. And we're going to get used to another Another, thing. And within, you know, 10 years, it just, what, men, women, whoever, you know, it'll be be something new that we're worried about. (laughs) What I think is the good thing is that young people are being, I don't know the way the word is radicalized, but being a, a beginning to want to protest. And I think that's always a good thing. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. I grew up in the 60s. And, but, the, but the notion that, that events cause people to be skeptical of what they're being told enough to want to protest when they're young, I think is the best thing that can happen because it means that a lifetime of, of, of therefore being willing to disagree, question and potentially act. So I think I think young anytime I was so depressed when I first started teaching uh, at Yale when I which was the night early 1980s that the students were so much more conservative than the faculty at that time that I knew because most of us had I'd grown up in an area where you you protested. I mean it was just the standard thing and and I wasn't seeing any of that, but I am seeing more of it now and I'd so that's a positive thing. I know. Yeah, it's really hard to that that balance when you have a huge problem with misinformation mm-hmm. and you want to be um, uh, ridiculously free speech mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you have that problem when someone's going to speak on a campus mm-hmm. and uh, the idea of a protest uh, crosses over into not letting those people speak, there's, the, there's that really – I mean free speech is never pretty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never, it's never neat. It's never even because uh, as soon as you start talking about someone's absolute right for free speech, the other side has that power. And mm-hmm. n- not the other side, the other infinite mm-hmm. number mm-hmm. of sides mm-hmm. have that power. And where do we decide and who gets to do the rules on if you yell this much, they're no longer allowed to speak? And where, where does that stop? Well, I think there can be consensus on that. So protest at meetings is legitimate. Uh, Standing up and screaming is legitimate. Breaking up the meeting isn't. Mm -hmm. I've had plenty of experience with this. (laughs) uh, And you feel there's a a really easy line we could all agree on? Nothing in life is easy, but I think there's a reasonable line which you can sort of uh, accept and agree on. But I agree with you. It should be... uh, not only in principle, but even um, uh, because of consequences. There should be uh, uh, every opportunity for people to speak freely. I know you've been wanting to get to this because you've been, you've been needling me with it for a little while now. You want to get to the climate change thing because you just read 
uh, a book I wrote several years ago. Yeah, yeah. Which has an attack at someone who attacked me on climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's no way you can deny that there's climate change. Uh, I have completely changed on that. Although completely changed is a little bit confusing. Yeah. Because I never went beyond, I don't know. Yeah. What bothers me about the climate change thing uh-huh. uh, was a, the great disservice uh-huh. done by Al Gore yeah. of exaggerating. Yeah, no, it's and always... We have to we- scare people. We have to do this. And I hate the fact that style affected me, but the kind of people who were talking about mm-hmm. it were the kind of people that were so dismissive mm-hmm. of people that I loved that, that I... I bribed. You had an, um, you had an emotional right. reaction. It was very, very emotional, and also the fact, and this is, this is true for everything. Yeah. Which is why I don't know why it's special, but it feels special. Mm. I just don't have. You know, my friend Tim Jennison mm-hmm. took a deep dive into mm. climate change, mm-hmm. and Tim is really smart, mm-hmm. and Tim has the um, the the resources mm-hmm. to be able to take. Six months and do nothing yes. else. Okay. He it's can nice do that. that. It's a nice job if you can get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, it's too hard. So I have to admit that I am taking climate change strictly uh, on authority fair, and pure, pure pressure. And saying that sentence bothers me. And yet I do it on everything else. Yeah, we all do it on everything else. Yeah. But I think you could let me try and reassure you a little bit. We can't be experts at everything, right? So we have to take into car mechanics. Uh, yeah. But but what you can always ask yourself, if you're a skeptic, is say, okay, look, I, I you know I don't have the time, resources, or, not, or background to be able to necessarily test everything this person tells me. But you can ask yourself the question, what's in it for them? And, and is is there a reason for them to lie to me? Is there a reason for them to fabricate? Is there a reason? And I think you, those are the kind of questions you can ask. But those, that question gets the exact wrong answer that you want from me. Okay, why? Because there's a lot of reasons. Um, Any sort of doomsaying of any kind is really, really sexy. Discovering the end of the world and how to fix it makes you a superstar and a hero. There's also always money in it. Well, no. Where's where's the money? I mean, for most of you, got look. There's a few people who are become public figures, and that's a different thing. But there are thousands of scientists who are just mm-hmm. doing this, you know, working on their models yeah, yeah. on a computer model, and they're not whatever the answer at the end of the thing. They're not going to get more money if it's one thing or another. Yeah. In fact, as I've you know, if they if their computer model and it's well done shows something dramatically different than the rest of the crew and they yep, can defend yep, yep, it yep. then they become then they become right famous that's, and that's so true. so there's every reason to try and go against the tide in science mm-hmm. and so but, you know you know all this yeah, I, know, I, know. I don't need to but i also think and I, I guess this is just i think it was okay uh when al gore was doing all that lying to go uh, i don't know for a few months. Well, no. For maybe I, a year. It's always, look, it's always right to, I th- I mean, I can sympathize with that, I think. Uh, well, of course and, you I know, can. The fact but, that he, he did. He, well, the fact that people oversimplify. Well, and the question is, do you know it knowingly? I Here's my, look, I spend a lot of time explaining, trying to explain science. And there are lots mm-hmm. of reasons why I think it's worthwhile doing. 
I have very low standards in terms of what I can, what I find acceptable. I mean, the bar when I when I when I when I castigate something is just simply this. I'm when I'm explaining something, I know I'm misleading at some level because I never unless you do the exact mathematics, whatever analogy I'm providing always fails somewhere. Well, analogy long, is never true. Exactly. As long, but if I'm careful to say that. To say where it's not accurate, that's fine. But the one thing that I have no tolerance for, and I know a lot of people, I'm not going to name names, um, is to knowingly mislead. But here's how I get beat up, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, we did a thing called uh, uh, Comic Relief yeah. for Homeless. Sure, yeah, With yeah. Robin Williams, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And there was this whole speech in there that said anyone can become homeless. Mm -hmm. It's not just if you're mentally ill. It's not just if you're on drugs. It's not just this. This could happen to anybody or your family any day. But I said to Robin, that's not true. Oh, well. That's really not true. More a great number of the homeless people do have mental illness issues. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. A great number. Yeah. It's not true that it hits people at random. No, no, And no. there's no way doing but, it. But there's things that can happen to you they have no control. Right. But yeah. what I'm talking about is they were saying, well, that helps us have more compassion for people. Oh, I see. And I was saying, no, 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 no. We just tell the truth. These people need help. help. Let's yeah, help them. Yeah. The exact same thing happened. Uh, we started an organization called Broadway Cares, mm-hmm. which is for uh, people suffering with AIDS. Yeah. And it was in the 80s. It was very early on, uh, very early on. And I was in all these meetings, and they would say, we have to stress that this is not gay. This is not drug users. This is everybody. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be moving to the straight population yeah. right away. Mm-hmm. And I say... Um, well, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. So far, it is drug users and it is yeah. gay. And uh, we can tell people that. And they said, no, no, no. We won't get any help from people if we do that. We have to scare everybody with that. And I said, no, no, we, we can't. You, no. And they'd say, and, 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 and I'm now quoting, so please forgive me. You're not going to get America to care about a bunch of faggots. Okay. And I said, well, maybe they do. Maybe maybe there is a love out there. You can't assume. And they said, we have to say it's going to everybody. Uh, so there were all these shows in the 80s saying, you know, it's going to move into yeah. the straight population this amount of time. And their point of it was we need to help people. It was done for compassion. And then I was asked to do VO when I was on uh, Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And they said... Um, uh, this much rainforest is being destroyed every day. But mm-hmm. da, 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 da. Yeah. And there was just a series of numbers I yeah, was giving. Yeah, yeah. And this studio wasn't ready, mm-hmm. which is their only mistake. <laughs> and I went through and I did the mathematics, yeah, okay. the, the arithmetic, not yeah. mathematics, arithmetic, just, just yeah. did it. Yeah. And I said, this, this actually doesn't play out. Uh-huh. You just said the number of acres <laughs> and stuff, and I just <laughs> multiplied it out. It's just wrong. <laughs> and they said, doesn't matter. And I said, well, no, it does. It kind of does. And they said, well, we got this from the, it does. I said, well, just let them tell me, let me call somebody because I'm not good at this, yeah. but there might be something wrong here. Yeah. And they said, doesn't matter. Just do the VO. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> and that's, I just left. Well, no, that's, you know, that's, uh, you see, that's your damn problem. You're just too honest. But, so, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, I have to, con- I, but I, what I, I'm saying you is, you are one of the most honest people I've ever met. But what I'm saying is, Al Gore, please, for the love of Christ, you've got something that could be the end of the world. Don't cheat. Do not cheat. But the other thing was that that was so important to me Mm -hmm. was Beetle Bootlegs. 
Oh, okay. The first Beatle bootleg that came that I that came to Greenfield was a thing called Comeback, K-U-M-B-A-C-K. Yeah. Yeah. It was outtakes from uh, Let It Be, mm-hmm. a little little bit little bit from Abbey Road, but mostly from Let It Be. I think it was maybe all Let It Be. And uh, I had believed, firmly believed, and mm-hmm. I still can fall into this. Mm-hmm. I had believed that the Beatles would get the idea for Sgt. Pepper's in mm-hmm. their head. Uh-huh. They would talk about it. And they would get clearly what they wanted it to sound like. Every kazoo, every (laughs) violin part, every vocal. They Uh would get that clear in their head. Then they would go into the studio with George Martin. Mm -hmm. And they would say, this is what has to be. We have to get this kind of crowd sound to start Sgt. Pepper's. Then we want an orchestra tuning up. And then we'll first have a kind of fuzz guitar come in. Mm-hmm. And then the on beat three, we'll have the drums come in. Okay. And they would lay that out and they would then do it. And I would just go, this is the most perfect thing mm-hmm. ever. And that was every record, blonde on blonde, <laughs> freak out. I just believe that. And then Beetle Bootleg. Okay. $10 <laughs> at Gribbon's Music yeah. Store. I <laughs> go and I buy Come Back. When I find Mother Mary, come, Mother Mary comes to me. Let it be. Holy fuck! (laughs) You mean you can work on this shit? (laughs) You mean you don't, you know, and then John singing the wrong lines? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? What's he doing? And then George doing a completely inappropriate solo? So that was a. I was like, Oh, you get to try this stuff. So that it didn't it didn't heartbreak you. It it you, it it opened up a totally, whole word. Totally inspired me. I mean, I want to say in this, uh, please, please uh, forgive me for this, but I kind of said I can do this. Yeah. Now I'm not telling you I can do Sergeant Pepper's. Yeah, yeah. But I I uh, can work in the arts. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that can that showed you it was accessible. And I still That's go really crazy important. over this when um you know the new. Um, the new Blood on the Tracks, uh-huh. Bob Dylan bootleg yeah, came yeah, out yeah. with every single mm-hmm. version of it. And I am fascinated by, you know, this is, this is all ties into one of my least favorite words, which is the word genius, uh-huh. which is another word for lazy. Uh-huh. Someone that uses the word genius is someone who's lazy. Yeah. yeah. Because they want to say, oh, this guy can just do this. Yeah. And there's no guy yeah, who can, can just, just do, do this. this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was always this myth that was Bob Dylan did blood on the tracks. Uh-huh. He was having fights with Sarah. Uh-huh. They were going to get a divorce. Uh-huh. He went to the studio. He poured his heart out. He wasn't quite happy with that. He added a band. Blood in the Tracks came out. It was just pure from his heart, just poured out. Then there were rumors that there was a notebook where (laughs) Dylan took little notes and worked on it. And everybody heard about the notebook. Now he's given his archives to that new museum. There were three notebooks in tiny, tiny writing. Both sides of the page. Every single song on the album, (laughs) every single word changed. Crossed out, added in, crossed out. They finally interviewed Bob Dylan and said, well, so this was just about your marriage break. Mm. Because I was reading Chekhov, (laughs) and I was interested in whether short stories could be told out of time. (laughs) And I was also studying painting, and the perspective idea of how that changes over time interested me. And I wanted to put that down in the words, and that's why I'm changing these things here and there. But weren't things terrible with Sarah? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They were. But I was also working on a record. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know...
There was a guy named Kreskin, mm-hmm. still around. I know him, Canadian, uh, as a yeah, matter of fact. Yeah, mind reader, mm-hmm. uh, supposedly. And he came out with uh, a show uh-huh. that he would do on. He didn't do it on Carson because yeah. Carson hated him. Uh-huh. But there was some show he did where he came out and demonstrated mm-hmm. uh, mind reading ability and okay. talked about the science mm-hmm. of this. At that time, uh, the best I can figure from when the game was released and so on and going back and doing yeah. a little bit of forensics, I was probably 13. Okay. Um, he came out with that. I was very into science, uh-huh. crazy into science. I read science all the time. I love science. And that was going to be my life. And I watched him do this scientific experiment as he presented it. As he presented on it. On TV. Mm. And he had this ESP kit that he sold. Yeah, which I was a, that. Which was Chris a little uh, pendulum with a, the idiomatic movements and, yeah. the, uh, and, the, and the ESP cards. And my parents, uh, uh, my dad was a jail guard. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I have wonderful relationship with my parents. They were not wealthy. Sure. Um, but this was science. Mm-hmm. So I could buy this ESP kit. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. I bought the ESP kit. My sister, much older than me, she's, she was 23 when I was born. Wow. So I was raised essentially as an only child yeah. with my sister sure. living yeah. in town. Um, and uh, so my mom and dad, every night, would run through this stupid ESP kit with me. You. Oh, and I, and nice. I kept all the records and kept everything carefully and did all the graphs and all the science. And then as luck would have it, I was very into juggling. Uh, the juggling section of the library, if you remember your Dewey Decimal System, okay. is... Oh, uh, yeah, it's ingrained. <laughs> very very close to religion, by the way. Yeah, way. yeah. Uh, all in the 900s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and juggling is near the magic, uh-huh. right? So I, I remember that. I saw a book uh, by Dunninger uh-huh. and just kind of thumbing through it. And the tricks started to look similar to what Kreskin had done oh, I see. as ESP. Uh-huh. And I finally looked through and found the trick. Uh-huh. And my reaction was so inappropriate. You had an inappropriate uh, reaction? I can't believe it. I I was heartbroken. I was destroyed. Yeah. The fact that a scientist, yeah. I'm putting this in my terms. Yeah, now, sure. Yeah. The fact that a scientist went on TV and lied to me, oh. uh, 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 inconsolable, and embarrassed in front of my parents. Mom and uh, Dad, I was making you do so this, and it was, it was all, all stupid. It was all jive. Uh. And I went from, and this is absolutely true, from straight A's in science to flunking. To being directly to my science teacher, I want nothing to do with you people. You lie to people. Wow. And my entire school career changed there. And I went from a straight-A student to flunking the rest. rest. That was the demarcation. Wow. And my hatred for magicians and scientists, who to me were the same. you got to see this all as a twelve-year-old. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's the, no background, no, you know, you know, you know, yeah, no perspective of what what the difference. And then uh, through a kind of uninteresting uh, series of events, I met Teller, uh-huh. and Teller simply said to me, "He said uh, you can do magic without lying." You had a personal event in your life very young, where that happened. You did did that impact? I don't know if you want to talk about it. You don't have to if you don't want to. No, I I know what you're referring to because um, I was t- being interviewed by a reporter, and this experience had just happened to me, and I told this reporter about the experience because it was so amazing to me. 
um, that would have been in the 90s. So mm-hmm. that would have been, you know, decades, you know, mm-hmm. almost a couple of decades exactly. after. after I started this work. So what happened to me that that was so amazing that I told this journalist, it was a chronicle of higher education okay. uh, writer, as oh, a matter of fact. Okay. Um, my mother did drown when I was 14. And now jump ahead. I'm an adult. I've been working on memory for 15 years or more. Uh, when I went to a 90th birthday party for an un- for an uncle of mine, Uncle Joe, uh, and at this birthday party, a relative made reference to my mother's death from decades and mm-hmm. decades before and said, you know, you were the one who found the body. I said, no, I... In, in lying in the swimming pool. Yeah. And I said, no, I didn't. Her sister did, my aunt. And, mm-hmm. Oh, no, you're the one who found it. And this relative was so positive, older relative. Mm-hmm. And it had been so long. And I started thinking, wow, maybe I did. And then I started picturing her in the swimming pool, face down. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to believe and remember this, and I started to draw inferences that were consistent with my having found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remembered that when the firemen came to the place that they gave me oxygen. Well, maybe they gave me oxygen because I was so upset because yeah. I'm the one who found the body. And, yeah. and so now I had this memory. A week later, the relative called and said, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. It wasn't you. <laughs> it was... Wow. It was your aunt who found uh, the body and I thought boy that's what it feels like that that's it's really what, interesting to it, but when you have that personal experience of exactly what you're working oh, on oh oh yeah it was so incredible it was eerie. by the way I I once finally had the experience of sleep paralysis I think there are two kinds of people and, and, and maybe this sounds <laughs> uh, pompous I, I don't know you'll tell me but there are people who really when they hear something when they realize there's something they don't know are thrilled and there are people who are, when they realize there's something they don't know, are 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 upset, I think. Yeah. And because the thrill, the fact that there's so much more to know about the world is what keeps me going personally sure. every day. In some sense, I, I kind of think that's the difference between religion and not. In the sense that <laughs> in the sense that the thrill of not knowing. Well, yeah. And Feynman said that. I you know, well, I'm not afraid of not knowing. And my, I think that uh... I don't know if you've ever heard the ten to one model I've been doing fire eating. No. Um but I have a this was, and I, I, this is, this is just bragging. Okay, good. Uh, I just did it too, so it's good. Uh, Feynman. Uh, mm-hmm. There was, the, there was the monologue that closed our show on Broadway, uh-huh. closed our show off Broadway, mm-hmm. and we did it also before that in 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 L.A. And it was a final monologue I did about how to eat fire. I taught okay. people how to eat fire. Okay, and I talked about what the carnival meant to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a section in there, which I I won't do the whole thing, was I said, uh, people often think that that, uh, scientists are, uh, don't like the mystery, want to end the mystery. And the fact is, scientists are the ones that love the mystery. The people that don't like the mystery, the people that when there's a mystery there, they just believe the first thing they're told. Or they make up something and believe that. Mm -hmm. Or they believe anything they hear on Oprah. Just anything to shut out the mystery and stop them from thinking. You know, what scientists want is more mystery. It's the opposite. It was a whole monologue. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it all culminates in teaching how to eat fire. It's all about oh, fire. I love that. Okay. And it's the fact of does it take away the mystery to explain the physics of fire eating, doing that whole thing. And Feynman mm-hmm. uh, saw us 
accidentally. Mm-hmm. We were playing a 100-seat theater mm-hmm. in Hollywood before anybody knew who we were. And he introduced himself as Richard Feynman and almost passed out. <laughs> I didn't know how big a deal he was, yeah. but the deal I thought, thought he was was, was enough. Yeah. And he said, um, I mean, I mean, uh, I may cry saying it yeah. now. Feynman said, your final monologue is what I've been trying to explain to my wife for 20 years. Oh, wow. And I never got her to understand it. Oh. And he said she understood it tonight with you eating that fire. He said it is the most perfect description of science ever. Oh. And then three weeks later, Feynman showed up with eight Nobel Prize winners. He signed up and he, he came up afterwards and said, this may be the largest concentration mm-hmm. of Nobel Prize mm-hmm. winners in a magic show ever. In a magic show. <laughs> <laughs> and none of them can figure out the, the magic. <laughs> don't, not, don't. <laughs> fool them. Don't, don't fool them. Yeah. But he said that that description, that monologue, was what he was trying to say. That it's it was not, it's not closing down yeah. mysteries. Yeah. And there's... Every time you read this anti-atheist stuff yeah. of scientists think they have all the answers, yeah. you just not, go, what are you, what are you talking not, what about? about yeah. Religion people think they, they have, have all, all the answers. answers. Exactly. And, They've got all the answers. And like you don't even have a path to all the answers. Yeah. We don't, don't even know what there. the questions are. You don't even have a path there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you solve every single thing you're working on yeah. right now, you can't even measure that you've yes. gotten closer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's really important, it seems to me, in, in talking about this to members of the public and, and sometimes politicians, is that this isn't always rocket science. The details are very complicated models, but the basic physics of energy flow is, 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 pretty, is pretty straightforward. That's exactly and, right. And what's surprising is that it works. I mean, maybe not surprising, but when, when you see that these base, this basic physics predictions work, there's good reason to trust them. So... Yeah, I mean, the basic idea of climate change has been around for 100 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... just the energy in, energy out. It's it's not it's not much different. I mean... No, absolutely not. And indeed, you know, people sometimes forget our neighboring planet Venus, yeah. right? Which is very similar to the Earth in yeah. size and is about 460 degrees Celsius on its surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right? And, and uh... Super hot. Why? It turns out most people think because it's closer to the sun. Mm. And it's true. Venus gets about twice as much solar energy as the Earth does because yeah. it is closer yeah. to the yeah. sun. But because it's so bright and reflective on the surface, uh-huh. if Venus had the same atmosphere as the Earth, uh-huh. it would be substantially colder than the Earth, Inter- which is interesting. It is interesting. The reason that. Venus is so hot, you know, it's, mm. you know, 460 mm. Celsius. Yeah, it's it's credi- incredible yeah. hot. It's because it has an atmosphere almost 100 times thicker than the Earth, and 97% of that atmosphere is carbon dioxide. Yeah, okay. So, so you know, the, the greenhouse effect as a as a as a phenomenon, is really not in question. And and was relevant at the early history of the Earth. The Earth would have been, I mean, the sun has been ch- getting it, it, brighter. It was 15% less bright it's in the early history of the Earth. Star and, and, and so we should have been frozen, except the carbon. And then there was a greenhouse uh, effect that preserved liquid water on the Earth in the early history of the Earth. The carbon dioxide density was something like 10,000 times what it is now in the very earliest moments of the Earth or something. Pro- probably not that thick, but, and there may have been some additional gases yeah. as well. But here's the... But but the general idea is there's actually a remarkable chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's a chemical reaction between carbon dioxide, water, which makes carbonic acid, yes. and then rock. Yes. And that reaction, igneous rock, volcanic yeah. rock, and that reaction yields, essentially it's an acid-base reaction. Mm-hmm. So carbonic acid is an acid mm-hmm. and it reacts with igneous rock and basically makes calcium carbonate or chalk Store, or limestone. Stores the carbon. 
And so essentially that chemical reaction takes carbon dioxide out of the air and converts it to limestone on the ocean floor. Yes. What's amazing about that, so that reaction, because that reaction is temperature dependent, mm -hmm. that becomes a thermostat. So yeah. when the earth gets too hot, that reaction speeds up uh -huh. and CO2 is drawn down. And when that reaction goes too slowly, volcanoes naturally trick. Now remember, volcanoes are only putting out about 1% of what we're burning from fossil fuels. So it's not like volcanoes are a danger. Yeah. But they're doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. And the CO2 coming out of volcanoes is balanced by what is going back down as calcium carbonate. It's this remarkable And so it's balance. this incredible cycle. Until life evolved. But now, yeah. now what we're... What we're doing to it is really extraordinary. Yeah. Um, we are perturbing it by a factor of 100. Yeah, that's important. I think that, you know, when people now, say- The earth will take care of it, right? Again, yeah. this, these chemical weathering reactions, this reaction between water and rock and, and CO2 will happen and but, it will take care of our problem. Yeah, but, but on geological- But it will take about 100 to 200,000 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just not fast enough. If, if, yeah. <laughs> so let me start. In fact, there's a picture on here. Mm -hmm. Pluto, planet or not? Planet. Me too. Now, why, why do you think it's a planet? Because my, my daughter did her f grade four project on Pluto, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to make her go back to grade four I have to, and, re and redo that. But why is it a planet to you? No, you know, it, uh, there's, there's a bit of a story here, but, yeah. you know, we have undergone this revolution in both planetary science and astrophysics. Sure, sure. That uh, you go back a generation, you go back to, say, 1990, and all we knew of were the nine planets of our solar system. Sure. And then the Kuiper Belt was discovered, the third zone of our solar system. Mm. And not only did we find lots of small, primordial, what we call planetesimals out yeah. of what you know, planets were made from, but we started finding the cohort population for Pluto, other dwarf planets. Sure. And uh, it freaked some people out because when, when the world was quaint and our knowledge was limited and we only knew of nine planets, you could know all their names. Yeah, exactly. And then as the numbers grew... Believe it or not, scientists, people who you think would respect <laughs> data, started to say, oh, this will tarnish our reputation. You know, school children won't be able to remember it. And uh, the International Astronomical Union freaked out in 2006 and said, no, nope, we're going to keep the number at eight. That's it. You know what I said in response? We're going to go back to eight states now? What? Yeah, exactly. I mean, are we going to limit the periodic table to stop at beryllium? Yeah, well, I mean, the point <laughs> is, it's, and, and this is the point, I, one of the reasons I asked you is, is that people say, what defines a planet? And of course, it's a really... It, so actually, there's a really good physical definition. It's called the geophysical mm -hmm. planet definition. Yeah. And it's very simple. It says an, a planet is an object in space that's large enough to be rounded by its own self-gravity. I did an experiment once um, at the, uh, the, the uh, Rose Planetarium. Yeah. Uh, Neil Tyson had me there, and we were talking about the same subject. We set this up in advance. Yeah. Oh, good, because yeah, I've, I've hit Neil about Pluto many times whenever I'm there. Yeah, well, <laughs> Neil's selling a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but this was in 1999, and uh, uh, we, we got to talking about this, and then we had set it up. I had his ushers pass out a, a blank sheet of paper to every person in this 1,100-seat theater. And we said, draw a picture of a planet. And then we collected them, and we counted the number that were round and the number that were squares, triangles, or other shapes. 
1100 to zero. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've heard people say, well, it's not just that they're round, but they also must control gravitationally sort of uh, sweep out the region around them, be the dominant uh, 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 right. gravitational object. And I, the bottom line is, and, and one of the reasons I want to bring it up is, is it reminded me of uh, when I've worried about this silly debate about whether Pluto is a planet or not. Uh, and as I say, for those of us who, as old as me and, and you, it's, it's going to be a planet because we grew up with it that way, is, was Richard Feynman, actually. There's a story when Feynman was young, he went, his father used to take him for walks in the woods and, you know, talk about nature. And they'd be looking at these birds and he'd say, well, you know, what's the name of that bird? What's it? And his father said to them, the name doesn't matter. We don't learn anything by, by, by the label of a bird. What you learn about, what's important to know is how the bird behaves, how, how it goes for food and, 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 and all of the aspects of its behavior. That tells you something, but the name is unimportant. Right. And, but, you know, science is ultimately reductionist. Yeah. Right? We try to, to take a large number of disparate facts and make sense out of them. And uh, categorization is important. Now, about this gravitational criteria, yeah. um, we don't require that stars control their zones in galaxies, for example. Uh, nowhere else in astronomy is there any definition that was specifically engineered to limit the number of objects to something that you can memorize. Yeah. It's very anti-scientific if you think about it. But it is important that we as planetary scientists, and I know you're an astrophysicist mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and physicist, mm. but in planetary science, we need to understand which objects are and are not the central topic of our field. Sure, sure. And, and we want a definition that works. Now, the interesting thing mm -hmm. is, is after the 2006 IAU vote, mm -hmm. the press completely bought it, and then the textbooks changed, and teachers started teaching eight planets, Pluto's not a planet um, kind of thing, neither the other mm -hmm. dwarf planets. Yeah. Um, planetary scientists more or less ignored that. Yeah. If you go to planetary science meetings where people are giving talks, they'll use the word planet, not just to describe Pluto yeah. as a matter of course, yeah. uh, and the other dwarf planets, but even large satellites that orbit other planets. Sure. So from a planetary science standpoint, the objects that are planets, are, it doesn't matter what they orbit, what they're near, it, your zip code, your location has nothing to do with it. It's the intrinsics of the object. The same way that a biologist doesn't care if a, to categorize a uh, um, a given being in its species, whether it's in a herd or a yeah, flock or yeah. owned by itself. And Phil Metzger, who's mm -hmm. a professor at the University of Central Florida, Phil did, <laughs> did a paper yesterday, uh -huh. uh, last year, uh -huh. a fascinating paper. He did, he used some machine learning techniques to look at all the planetary science literature uh -huh. since 2006 and determine how many papers written by planetary scientists are using the IAU Definition. Definition. Do you know what he found? None. The Zero. only, none. He looked at some, I, I may have the number wrong, he looked at tens of thousands of research papers. Holy he found the only papers that used the definition were papers about the definition. Oh, okay. And that every research paper in every journal uses the geophysical planet definition, because maybe it, without saying it, because it's useful. Because it's physical, that's the point. And the, the IAU definition is just not useful. There's a couple of things wrong with the concept of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. One is the facts. You know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The other is it's not American. Yeah. Every great power has had the same exceptionalism. Uh, Britain, when it was virtually genocidal all over the world, was 
praising itself on its magnificence. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's... uh, France had the civilized mission while the uh, French minister of war was calling on the army to exterminate the population of Algeria. Uh, If we had records from Attila the Hun, he would probably be just uh, (laughs) overwhelmed with uh, good... good, The fact that every country's thought that they've been the unique source of goodness and uh, because of their powers... There's nothing exceptional about American exceptionalism. Well, but since it isn't exceptional, what about... Is the reverse? You give me examples. Are... Are other countries, I mean, other countries are trying to assumedly impede American economic progress. And what's the response here? How can they impede American economic? Well, well, I guess, the, I mean, let me, let me just, uh, let me give you, I mean, I'm not an economist. My ignorance is going to show here, but I'm assuming, You for should example, know better than to judge, accept <laughs> specialist judgments. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. But, um, I mean, to some extent, China can impede American progress by being able to produce the same goods and services much more cheaply. But who's producing them in China? U.S. corporations who want to function, work in China. If U.S. corporations don't like Chinese rules, they can invest somewhere else. By the way, there was an article in today's uh, New York Times that said exactly that, right? The response to some of the pressure from Trump, one might say, I don't know if you saw this article, but it was basically saying there's some impact to what's going on and some companies are, are stopping having made things in China, but what they're doing is not bringing back the United States. They're just finding another place to do it, which is... But but the idea that it's unfair for China to impose uh, technology transfer restrictions or partial ownership restrictions on, say, Boeing uh, is... it's, It's not a question of national policy. If Boeing doesn't like that, nobody's forcing them to invest there. Yeah. Okay. So... What right do we have to punish them for trying to do that? Uh, Quite apart from the fact that the whole history, that's how we develop, how England develop, how everybody develops. I think uh, this is very in, and Mm -hmm. it's just my theory. It's probably Mm -hmm. not true again. um, But there's a difference between when I'm I'm making a, uh, like afterlife, yeah. where I'm trying to create a world and there's there's words and pictures and a yeah. story to get people in, and, and I think that's the most fundamental yeah. thing we have: a storytelling. Yeah, yeah, sure, you can have all the uh, avatars and CGI's yeah. in the world, yeah. but it come down to one person telling another person story. what happened to them, mm. and that, that's that's the most human it gets. Okay, yeah, that's it's never the that's campfire. What it's all about. That's where yeah. where empathy starts, where caring starts, mm. where intrigue. Yeah. That is it, right? Yeah. Um. So. I do that, and I make it, and I put music on it, oh, and, and you know, you manipulate emotions, and yeah. you take them on a journey, oh, and you surprise yeah. them, and all that, right? And then you do your best guess, and it's what you wanted. I get final edit, and if it works out like I wanted it, I, I can't fail. Yeah. And I put it out there, and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, they sure. tell me if they liked it or they didn't. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Stand-up's different. Stand-up is slightly more like a science because it either works or it doesn't. So I go out there every night yeah, and, you, and I hear the laugh. You, so I keep that bit. I don't hear the laugh, lose that bit or change it. So eventually I've created this perfect beast. It's natural selection. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's the, exact- audience of ch- yeah. the audience is the world yeah. and they've chosen the bits that it, work it, it, for them. Work. Yeah. An audience is the same everywhere. Interesting, really? Yeah, yeah the biggest... Um, it, whether it's a Friday or a Monday, whether it's a hall or a theatre, makes mm-hmm. more difference to where that thousand, ten thousand mm-hmm. people are. Yeah. Because when you get that many people, that's a sample. Yeah, yeah. So if they can understand what you're saying, yeah, right, yeah, they're the same. I could, I could do, I could play Chicago one night and and Liverpool the next, uh-huh. and I could do a readout 
of the laughs and the gasps and the it's same, exactly, exactly the same. same. That's fascinating. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. And I've, well, you know, I, when I lecture, I mean, humor is an essential part of, for me, it keeps me going. So when I'm lecturing or writing, humor is a yeah. big part no, of it. And what I was going to say is I notice, I don't know if people are understanding me when I'm in Russia, say, uh, giving a lecture, but the way I figure find out is by making a joke. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, because it, yeah. well, of course then there's like th- or three second yeah. delay. Cause and they then, all and have then, to laugh at the same time. Yeah. 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 They yeah. can be nodding and pretending to get yeah. you. Yeah. I agree. It's like, it's the, the, that's when you tell it's like if you're not listening to a teacher yeah. and they say, So what do you think? And you have to go, Yeah, I wasn't listening. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I make a joke, yeah. You, yeah. yeah. Let me give my opinion of art. Okay. I think an artist an artist's task is not to capture that which is evident to everyone mm-hmm. for being extraordinary. Mm-hmm. They should capture things that we forgot to notice or never noticed at all. Okay? okay. Um, who is Paul Revere? <laughs> who is he? You mean the... the who is he? Yeah, well, he's, he's famous in American history, that Paul Revere, for, 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 what? His, for his ride, which he... Which he uh, well, okay. not, I was waiting. I know you're... I know. famous in American I, I, history. Yeah. He was... Who, I, who I, knows I, I'm in any war in any war that, is, Smith, that has ever been a, a, a um, pewter? Who knows in any war that has ever been fought the name of the person who told everybody the enemy is coming? coming. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you know that name of that person in any war that has ever been fought? No. No, no. no. But you know Paul Revere. Why? Because a poet oh, wrote a poem about yeah, it. Yeah, okay. He took a... He, the nighttime writer. Yeah. Can you name generals from the from that war other than General Washington? No. No, you can't. But you name Paul Revere. I can, I, I can name the British ones because I grew up in Canada. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the poet... Now, I don't know if the midnight rival Paul Revere is considered high poetry. Yeah. But it's memorable poetry. Yeah, okay. okay? Uh, how about Joyce Carroll? Uh, I mean, Joyce Kilmer. Uh, uh, yeah. Joyce Kilmer. Mm-hmm. What's her most famous poem? It's about a tree. Yeah, okay. A tree? Mm-hmm. Is it about some famous event, some general, some then, battle, but... some, some... No, it's about a tree. And you read that poem, you never look at a tree the same way again, and you've been walking by him every day of your life. Yeah, so, so you're right, but that's the... Look, I think so I say it a different therefore, way. Therefore, that's what I'm saying. I'm, okay. my, my, what I, I see, one of my tasks yeah. is to help people celebrate things about the world, about the universe, about laws of, mm-hmm. of physics that they either take for granted or never knew were there, and they walk away from it having a new appreciation of their world. Well, look, and, I, and that's, that's a Sorry to one- scream at you again. It's okay. I you like make it. me scream at you all the all time. All the time, and I love it. I know you mean well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were the first woman who was the Editor of the opinion pages, right? Can I tell you about that? Yeah, good. This is I was going to ask you about it. This so is good. a thing that I, when I go out and, yeah. and talk about women's stuff, yeah. that I like to talk about. There was a generation of women mm-hmm. who came right before me, mm-hmm. who went to court, who fought in this company too, who, who found that there was no pattern, there was no way forward, there were no women editors, there was no way a woman could move into the top, the most exciting, the most profitable parts of the company. And they went to court and they filed suits 
and the company responded. But when the company responded, they were never the ones who got the reward because oh. they were the pains in the neck who yeah. had gotten all the yeah. trouble. Yeah. It was people like me who were walking in the door right then who had not pissed anybody off because uh. we were just in college, who got all those advantages. And there is a generation of women who you know about the great leaders like Gloria Steinem and Benny yeah. Friedan, but there are all these women who nobody talks about who just filed suits and who never got the stuff themselves mm-hmm. and who filed suits for pensions. Mm-hmm. And the people coming into the workplace then got equal pension opportunities, but they never got their pensions. Yeah. It, it, it's, it happens all over the place. So it just, uh, you want every time you talk about this stuff to talk about these people mm-hmm. who opened up all the doors, but never got to walk never through got them the benefits themselves. Of, yeah. and, and then, so you view yourself as a beneficiary. Of Absolutely. A, yeah. I, which I assume is, a, I mean, for many movement, for the civil rights movement, I suppose it's, it's I mean, Obama would say the same thing, right? I mean, it, 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 at least he said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's useful if you're a person who, I mean, I, I got to be editorial page editor in large part yeah. because of the people who were conceivably qualified to do it. I was the woman. Mm-hmm. And they wanted think, that to happen. They wanted that to happen. Did that yeah. bother you? or was with, uh, No. And it, it doesn't – I mean, I, what, what bothers you is when you feel like, oh, my God, nobody thinks I can do the job. Well, that's what worries thing, me. No. When, you say, when, you, when you're always referred to as the first editor of the editorial page – it doesn't, you know, that implicitly suggests for female editor of the editorial page that people are asking that question. I got to tell you, when when uh, this came up, Hal Raines, who was the editor before yeah. me, who was yeah. moving downstairs to become the executive editor, came in to see me and said, we've talked about this and we think that you should take my job. And I was not really in the line for it. And I was a columnist. I was really yeah. enjoying that. Yeah. And I said, Gee, how, I remember thinking how, yeah. how sad I was that you were leaving as a columnist. I that. was sad too. And I said, Hal, I don't know. And he said, Look at it this way. Look at where you are in the course of the history of the world. There are not many first women jobs left out there. And unless you think you're going to be baseball commissioner, this is the one you take to be the first woman to do something. Uh-huh. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. I could be the first woman. So that, that was an argument. for me. I've always wanted to have on this program an <laughs> omnivorous intellect. <laughs> And and uh, the definition of the word intellectual, people may not realize, but in my opinion, you are an intellectual. We'll, we'll try and display that. I believe mm. the best definition of intellectual I've ever heard mm. is someone who's willing to change their mind with information. That and it, Isn't that a nice definition? It is a great— And it's important that to not just be changed their mind. With information. With information, really which means the... you don't need the emotion. Yeah. You can do it with information, and that's a—, that's a Separate skill. Yes. Being able to change your mind is a different skill than changing your mind. By the way, you know, I wonder whether you found it hard to play. In Afterlife, you play someone who speaks his mind without a filter. How on earth did you did you get Well, your... <laughs> you say that. You say that. But actually, I, I don't speak my mind. I, I, know, um, uh, I bite my tongue every 30 yeah. seconds yeah. because I'm not a psychopath and I worry about the consequences. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, when I'm mugged, I hand over the money. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they might have a knife. Or, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, or yeah, sure. you might be with someone who get hurt or they know where I live. But, um, uh, you know, it, obviously, Tony, my character, he's got nothing to lose. So he goes, bring it on. Yeah. You know, so I think the comedy and the drama comes from us living vicariously through his freedom that we mm. haven't got because, you know, we, we, we do worry about people's feelings and we do worry about um, uh, uh, being right and honest and... Uh, 
And I think as I go on as a as a writer or a comedian, mm. all I care about now, again, the funny is still first. Yeah, sure. But next is, am I being as honest as I could be? That's interesting. Am I being as real? Am, am I really stripped? I've just got to be honest and brave. Am I being as honest and brave as I could be? Because that's that's all that matters you, now. It, it is. You, you. Well, I guess you think because it's well, it's easier because you have such great success. It gives you more opportunity to be honest and brave than than would you have been more afraid of it when you were were breaking into the to well, the field. Well, yeah, because, you could say the other way that you know you, you've uh, yeah, you have more you've to got lose, more because, to lose, and yeah, you're you a famous a person. You can yeah. everything go. Everyone goes for you. Um, but so what I try and do is try and make what I say defendable and you know mm. bulletproof now i've got to worry about what i say being defendable in in 10 years time with yeah, people yeah, going yeah. back and finding yeah, historic yeah, tweets yeah, and yeah, ruining yeah, people's yeah. career but I, I i don't care you know i, you know, I love the fact you know that you one of the things I admire and you're in a position where you can do that uh, it, when i you know when i'm associated with an institution like the university i can't do that and that you you respond to ridiculous tweets and you you know and you just say you say what needs to be said and 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 Without, it seems to me, without fear of later on being deprofiled, deplatformed for having said something. Well, I just think that um, uh, I don't want to be beholden to anyone. Yeah, yeah. I don't work for anyone. I don't... Actually, tell you the truth, that's one... I was motivated. It was, it was actually you, in a way, that made me think about doing this podcast and, and working just for myself with, through this. Because... It gives you so much more freedom to be able to to to, to do the things you want to do, of course, because you're not beholden anymore. Uh, but because um, I res- I respect the law, yeah, and I respect honesty, and uh, you know, with all these, there's there's already a load of caveats to freedom yeah. of speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I agree with libel and slander laws. Yeah. I agree with those. I agree with protecting uh, children. I agree with the watershed. I agree with all these things. I agree with food additives. I agree, you know, I agree with all the things. Yeah. What I don't agree with is you shouldn't say summer in case it hurts someone's feelings somewhere. Yeah. Well, fuck that. Yeah, well, the, uh, the whole point in which we try and I try to, lately in the United States is more and more under attack. Unfortunately, it's the right wing that are at least defending a little bit yeah. The notion, freedom of speech is designed to protect speech you don't like. You don't have to respect speech you like. It's, it's designed yeah. to respect the speech exactly. of someone that you, you say, that's horrible. If you but don't you believe right in respecting the, the freedom of speech for people who say things you don't agree with, you don't agree with freedom of speech. And it's this nonsense that... Um, I did a tweet recently that I said, I'm a typical lefty, liberal, snowflake, champagne, yeah. socialist kind of guy, yeah. anti-racist, anti-sex. Uh, and yet when I defend freedom of speech, I'm suddenly alt-right. Yeah, yeah. When did that happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Well, and, and it's, uh, but it is crazy. And, and it worries me in the States that the people who, it, the, the, because of this safe zone issue, the fact that people don't want to be uncomfortable, they're, they're, they're in fact, there was a, a U.S. university, I heard this, my wife was telling me this, that, a speaker came in and he was speaking on due process and freedom of speech and they created a safe zone so people didn't have to hear. And I say, and that, but that's hurting the, the left because the rights, it, 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 you know, Trump, it's like a monkey on a typewriter. Every one he does something right every now and then yeah. he actually issued an executive order, which is without teeth, but nevertheless saying that if universities didn't respect freedom of speech, they wouldn't get federal funding. But it's, but it's sad when it has to be tr- Trump that says that, but it's it, yeah, it's crazy that it's colleges that is the you know the seat of education and progress, yeah. and you know, that that's odd that it's there. You'd think you think know, that 
Do you, they, they'd have their, you'd think they'd have their backs against the wall with yeah. flaming torches saying, keep away you'd with what we... You'd think they'd be the last bastion it, it, of that, it, and they're it, not. It's odd. And it's, and it's actually art yeah. that's, 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 you know... Have you, uh, have, do you do college, did you do college campuses or, you know, did you, that on your, uh, when stand-up tours or anything like that, did uh, you ever do that? I don't, but that's because we don't really have them like you do in yeah, America. Yeah. Um, I mean, you should know. I mean, you've never been in a situation oh, where a group I, has said, "Well, we, you can't come. We don't want you. You're just too." Uh... Uh, no, I've, I don't think. I don't. I don't think anywhere's. I mean, I've, I've played a few colleges, but I think they're. I think because they're private theatres yeah, that are yeah, in my college. Yeah. I have. I haven't walked into a student union mm, yeah. and said, "I want to tell you some truths." Yeah, I don't do. Yeah, yeah. I think people think that of me. Like I run into churches and go, and it's all yeah, bollocks. Yeah, yeah. I don't do that. I don't I, care what they yeah, do. I yeah. don't care. Carry it's on. Something with people on, yeah. pulls on you but, that you respond. Yeah, but when you come to see one of my gigs, that's my church. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is like your your only choice is leaving. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. and I think that, and and in art, you know, that is your only choice. You know. You know, um, the only form of censorship is your right not to listen. Yeah, it's and that's cool. It's amazing when people come, come to hear you or come to read you, and they say that's offensive, and you say, "Yeah, why do you bother?" You know, yeah, you know. And actually, there was a situation that happened to me here in the UK. Probably the most terrifying thing I've done. I, I it was a very nice group here asked me to do a debate on atheism versus Islam, and and they were very respectful of me. But one of the things was that. Um, uh, people told me they were going to um, segregate it between male and female. I said, you're not going to do that. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And they, and then I went in and there was a separate door for men, a separate door for women, separate. And I said, and I just went in and I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And I'm going to walk out. And they put a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, publicity. So I walked out and of course they had me come back in and um, mixed them and, up a and, bit. And, and well, I, and I said, you're going to mix them up. And some kids moved and, and there was a big, I mean, someone to, as always, there was someone on a camera, and the good news was that it, that that this got in the papers and actually uh, ended up this group. It was, this was at the University of College London, I think. It was at a public. It was a it was at a secular environment, and they eventually got told they couldn't do that anymore. But what happened was at the end of it, there was a question period, and and there were a bunch of women in burkas, and one of them was very upset, saying, "Why did you?" Force me to sit. Well, it's it's really it's it's particularly serious. I think for Americans who think that I mean who become complacent about nuclear weapons, but think well, probably the the most dangerous place where nuclear weapons might be used is India, Pakistan, where there really are two states that really are at yeah. war that really hate each other. That both are nuclear states. And what what is important to f- point out is that is that it's not isolated. That a mere use of two hundred nuclear weapons in in India and Pakistan will produce a climate change that will. Uh, probably kill a billion people in terms yeah. of the uh, agriculture yeah. over the course of a decade. So there is no, it's there's not nothing. as if a local, there's it's no such thing as a local, wor- local. It's not war. even an option. Yeah. You, know, you can't think about it. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, the Trump administration is escalating the threat. Uh, the so-called uh, low yield nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, you know, who the people who can think about this, you can't even imagine what's in their minds. Suppose you're the opponent and somebody launches a, 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 a missile which you say has only low-yield nuclear weapons on it. Yeah. How do they know? No, they're going to react with by, by massive violence and you're yeah, done. Yeah, you know? no, I, no, I mean I'm the idea of, of usable nuclear weapons is a fallacy. I mean, and it's a, unfortunately the notion that if they're small enough, they're, they're indistinguishable from we, – we have to overcome that. But that's the – uh, as far as I can see, that's a myth that's happening now. And that's why the, the Ellsberg book, I think, is important because it, it points out 
people have become complacent because we've had 75 years of not using them against civilian populations. But and you took a look at the record. Yeah. We've come so close. Close. Well, so oh, there's close, that one, the Command and Control, a wonderful book about, about how close we've come yeah. to domestically and in, internationally yeah. to... And, I mean, and there's it's case not last, after that case. luck is not going to last forever. I mean, there's case after case we've come yeah. within a couple of minutes of using. Maybe because it evolved over th- over a long time, thousands of years, perhaps, as you point out, in one way or another, the Adam and Eve story is so pervasive throughout early early human uh, writing or talking or storytelling. But do you think that that those profound issues resided there, or were they just, or was Adam and Eve just a simple way of explaining something that people just had no possibility of understanding at the time? And let's just let's just let's just classify it and and get it out of the way. I mean, you ask a question in effect that's about the nature of myth, yeah, and all myths. I mean, would would equally apply to Oedipus, sure, uh, or to to innumerable other. Uh, myths that I believe and you believe don't have divine origin, mm-hmm. that they were m- made up yeah. uh, by people, and then they begin to circulate. Uh, if you're asking, is every thought that's been had about Oedipus or about Adam and Eve already in the in the head of the first person who circulated <laughs> that story? Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Any more, uh, it would yeah. be true of, of Shakespeare or Mozart yeah. or anyone else. I mean, mm-hmm. but the it, human beings don't uh, our lives are, are at least in the traces that we leave behind, are not limited to uh, this particular moment or this particular identity and the and the fantasy that it should all be in the head of this single individual is a kind of quasi theological fantasy. Yeah. I mean that it's what happens is that is that we survive as a species because we've developed cultures that that keep circulating objects and uh, the but the exist the fact that it didn't all happen in the head of the person who came up with this doesn't mean that the the questions are of course not, not real or even not that, that they're not in the story yeah. it just it has a slightly naive account of of what it takes to create something or, or how much is conscious in what one does it's not an accident in the Shakespeare's case that he invented virtually nothing. He's always ripping somebody off. Uh-huh. But the ripping off is the circulating of of stories. The the little salt story that the 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 third daughter who says, I love you as much as salt, mm-hmm. that goes back a tremendously long time. Shakespeare does a version of it in King Lear. Uh-huh. Uh that so he, uh does that make the original story? Does it mean that it's less powerful? Yeah. Does less profound? On the contrary, to me, it, it, the circulation actually is part of the profundity, and it goes back to something you said earlier about you read these things and you realize that uh, with the same problems. Well, that's that's true, but it's it, it it's it, it's true that we experience reading the works by dead people mm-hmm. often that if they mm-hmm. matter at all to us, we think. Oh my God! This person has written a letter directly to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that—that's part of the thrill of the survival of anything from yeah. the past that actually is reaching you power. Trump is not my favorite person, yeah. as you know. Yeah. But on North Korea, basically, I think he's doing the right things, and he's attacked for it on all sides. Whenever he does something more or less right, why I don't know. Maybe he's shooting arrows randomly. It's monkey monkeys on the typewriter. Every now and then you know, they get it right. Whatever yeah. the reasons are. Yeah. But uh, let's take a look at North Korea. On 
just the recent history. Uh, April 27th, I think it was, 2017, uh, the two Koreas met and uh, uh, negotiated and issued a very serious document, a historic document, Panmunjom Declaration. Mm -hmm. Very serious. Uh, In fact, a good article about it in Foreign Affairs of all places. Uh, For the first time, they not only made uh, rhetorical commitments towards denuclearization, Mm -hmm. towards uh, integration, uh, and as Foreign Affairs pointed out, made concrete proposals here. We'll do it step by step. Mm -hmm. And then it said uh, the two Koreas will do this on their own accord. Mm-hmm. Crucially, yeah. on their own accord, meaning leave mm-hmm. us alone. Uh-huh. Uh, we know who they're talking to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Trump is the one leading figure, for whatever reason, who's more or less observed this. The uh, Singapore uh, summit, for which Trump was bitterly denounced by mm-hmm. the liberals, uh, the con- conservatives, by everyone. He basically said, well, you guys go ahead on your own accord. Yeah. I mean, uh, even uh, took steps towards uh, reducing what he recognized to be provocative military uh, operations, American military operations in South Korea. Remember what's going on. And these operations, the U.S. is flying uh, nuclear capable uh, uh, aircraft bombers right at the border of a country that the U.S. wiped out, literally wiped out back in the early 50s. I mean, by the time the war settled into a kind of a stalemate, uh, what was happening was the U.S. was bombing massively. They couldn't find any more targets. You read the official Air Force history. They describe how, well, nothing to bomb. We'll just bomb the dams which is a huge war crime. Yeah, yeah. And then it discusses how it's interesting to read how euphoric they were about bombing this huge dam and a massive flood of waters uh, swamping uh, uh, all this area and Asians, uh, a little bit of racism, they yeah. depend on rice and they're fleeing and they're screaming and so on. This is the country that we're now flying nuclear-armed bombers right on their border. So, yes, it is provocative. And uh, Trump said, well, let's let's cut back some of this. I mean, I'm not saying what he said was wonderful, but it's basically but in the surprised. right direction. Well, we, except what he says and what he does are not always exactly the same. I mean, well, that's, and, and the, you know, the one thing, it's interesting to me that after all this bluster, the foreign policy is somewhat coming back to what might have been considered more realistic. I mean, there's st- the, 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 last, the last dialogue broke off because once again, the, New- the United States said, Unless you totally disarm, we're not gonna we're not gonna reduce actions, which is just seems to me to be completely unrealistic. Well, that's I think you know I don't know the inside story, yeah. but it looks like Pompeo and Bolton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it seems as if Trump's instinct was to say, "Well, go ahead," but he was kind of pushed. And remember, he's under attack from all sides. Yeah, the liberals attack him even more sharply than as sharply as the hawks. But uh, as I say, of all the major political actors here. He seems on this issue issue. to be the one who's closest to being what I would regard as taking the same position, letting the two Koreas proceed on their own accord as they've... But I want to ask, you know, your brother, 
influenced you there. Your brother, I think you said your brother was the funniest person you'd ever growing heard. up. He was the first person I saw saying things undermining societal norms, being being funny and irreverent and impolite. And I thought, and you know, and it worked. You know, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know, the first person you answered back to was your parents, and he yeah. answered back. You know, he got sent to bed. Yeah, but I remember thinking, no, he was right. Yeah, and I thought, oh, they they lost the argument. <laughs> they lost the yeah, argument. Sorry, okay, he, he said a few truths. Yeah, said, yeah, yeah, they yeah, exactly. The yeah, they, they, they had no recourse but like to Jesus. Say, yeah, that's right. Time yeah. to go to bed. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly. Uh, well, did he? Do you, th- do you think that? Did obvi- I guess the answer is obvious, but did, that had an I- impact on you. Well, it? you know, everything does. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, uh. My older brother was sort of quiet and and uh, and smart, and 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 that had an influence on me. I, I, you know, I quite liked the idea of academia from there. My sister, I felt like I was an experiment because mm. um, and my sister taught me to read when I was three. Oh wow! I remember the teachers showing other parents that making me read like I was a performing <laughs> monkey yeah. in this school, right? Um. And uh, so they all had a, an influence on me, and I think that's because uh, being the youngest has an influence. I was going to say straight away. The fact by you're the years. youngest. Oh, um, are more are more comedians the youngest? Children? I don't know. If I that's think true. so. You have to yeah. jump around to be heard. It's, yeah, it's probably yeah, a cliche, be, but there must yeah, be something yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. I was and, and your boundaries have already been pushed a little bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. you get an easier life. The life's a bowl of cherries, but you just have to be heard. Yeah, um, and because, you sort of see the absurdity of life by watching your older brothers interact with your parents and stuff yeah. like that. And and, that's and sometimes of, it can go far too far the other way because there was a danger that I was almost like an only child. Yeah. Because 11 years. Yeah. How old, much older is your sister? Um, so it goes 11, 13, 14. Oh, wow. Um, I remember wow. asking my mum when I was about 13, why are my brothers and sisters so much older than me? And she said, because you were a mistake. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I just laughed. Honesty. Honesty is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to say, okay, if we're doing something, they're all a mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say that? I've seen the wedding pictures. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just pandering. It's really, there's a reason for it, as you point oh, out. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Did- it can trigger interest and spawn further investigation. Did you, when you say you practice, did you? I looked in a mirror and I had, yeah. what you have is you have someone sort of bark out to you. Yeah. Single word of anything in your field. So yeah. Black hole. Yeah. Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sun. Yeah. The Big Bang. And we can try it, right? Yeah. Say anything in my field. Say anything in your field. Yeah, just Dust. Dust. <laughs> no, wait, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. So. <laughs> the regions of the universe uh-huh. where gas clouds become so cold that atoms come together and make molecules mm-hmm. and molecules come together and make dust. And these are atoms forged in stars that had given their lives beforehand. And this dust ultimately makes planets and life. So we are stardust. Okay, good. That's okay. a soundbite. That's soundbite. It's a great soundbite. And they would use that entire three yeah, sentences. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. like, whoa, I never knew that. Oh my gosh, that's what happens. And you get a little education in there. Atoms become molecules. Molecules become something we call dust. Mm-hmm. So that's, so I, I practiced that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me think. Well, you take some hydrogen. Or, no, that's not relevant. Mm-hmm. They're not going to no, remember yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, the the soundbites should contain yeah. that which they would have remembered mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, and when we're, we're talking about the Equal Rights Amendment yeah. going through, and sudden, everybody was passing it, they couldn't wait, and then suddenly, right before, right before there was enough, there were enough states to vote to put in the Constitution, it came to a screeching halt. 
with a movement that was not really about the Equal Rights Amendment. That was just about all the women who had been raised to believe that they had a certain role that was honored the housewife, the glories of the housewife in the 50s and the 60s on all TV programs. She was the heroine woman, yeah. and and that was what you wanted to be. And you were in all the magazines. There are pictures of you doing your yeah. cleaning and stuff. And that was the thing. And suddenly, almost it seemed like overnight, everybody is saying, you're a total failure, only a housewife. Yeah. Only a housewife. Oh, my Lord, what the heck is going on here? And there was there was a great, you know, response a great kind of reaction against it, and it, it stopped the Equal Rights Amendment at that point in time. Interesting. But then there was also an equal reaction, which I think is continuing today, which is the sense that you talk about, and that you were a failure if you couldn't do it all. Suddenly you had this opportunity. Um, and at that time, of course, when these opportunities were open, there was one thing that was really important you mentioned is is no child care. There was never... Right. The, these opportunities were created without the infrastructure that could support those opportunities. And it's very interesting that even now we're just beginning to have a big national debate about early childhood education and whether families should simply have the right to quality early childhood child care and early childhood education, which is the thing you need to call it, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's not daycare. We want yeah, early, early childhood, childhood education yeah, for all. And that's the thing. And and it's, I think, going to be one of the big issues, uh, the big social issues that we're dealing with, uh, if, if certainly if a Democrat is elected. I can't think of anything that pushes right down to the core life patterns of so many people. Again, the United States is, um, well, frankly, is behind many other countries in terms of social, many social programs. And, and you know, I grew up in Canada, I've lived in Australia, and I was kind of shocked to discover uh, and, and complained about my university when my one of my, my executive assistant uh, got pregnant the first time. And I saw that she got something like three weeks yeah. paid leave <laughs> and she could take, she could get another three weeks from, you know, f- mm. from her sick leave or something and use that up. Other countries provide six months or a year. It's a total from the point of view of ensuring the ability of of people to effectively carry on long term careers. Having three weeks, it just seems to me to be an automatic uh, non starter. Well, everything about having children is not built into the system. I mean, it, in, in theory, it's great, but yeah, you, you and then people want to have it all. Yeah. And economically, women presume they're going to have to have the working part of it for a great part of their lives. Uh, but it, it's just there's that nobody has been willing to do that. There was a, a, a couple of grand moments in Congress when it almost happened. And then just at the very last second, something fell apart and didn't happen. Do you think that l- what we see and learn from exoplanets will illuminate and help us understand the evolution of life here on Earth? Well, I think we've got to do both. First, yeah. I think that the people thinking about the origin of life on Earth, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a problem that even the most firmly ground-based biologists mm-hmm. cares about, yeah. um, they ought to be able to tell us, was it a rare fluke or not? Yeah. And also, was there something really special mm-hmm. about the DNA RNA yeah. base that we have? Uh-huh. Or could there be other quite different forms yeah. of life? So I think we know that in 10, 20 years. And I also think that we will have some clues as to whether the biosphere is elsewhere. We may find something um, under the ice of Enceladus or even on Mars, but we will, I think, with the next generation of telescopes, have some spectral evidence about some of the 
Earth-like planets orbiting nearby yeah. stars, which will tell us, you know, are they green? Mm-hmm. Is evidence yeah, for a non-equilibrium right. atmosphere, etc. Yeah. And so I think within 20 years anyway, it's not absurd to think we will have some evidence as to whether there is a biosphere on another planet. Uh, whether we're unique. Mm-hmm. I, mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine that the answer won't be yes, but, but do you agree or...? or? Well, I think I, um, I, I bet that there will be other yeah. biospheres. It may be more than 20 years before it, we are it, convinced of that. Yeah. Um, but, of course, uh, uh, whether those biospheres evolve oh, into a, anything, anything like what happened here, yeah. anything interesting, certainly anything intelligent, is yeah. a, that's quite a much, separate that's question. A, that, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, because we're here by, I mean, there's no evidence that ev- intelligence is an evolutionary imperative or, or I mean, we took four and a, four billion years on, mm-hmm. on Earth before we get this kind of intelligence. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. That's a that may be much more special. Yes, but but it's hard to imagine, given that the at least to me, given that life evolved on Earth about it, almost as soon as the laws of physics could have allowed, and that the fundamental constituents, water, organic molecules, and sunlight and energy, mm-hmm. is kind of ubiquitous throughout yeah, the galaxy. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. a hard time. Believing that mm. life itself, that mm. kind of life itself, no, is so do I. I mean, logically, it could be it was yeah. unique here, but it does seem unlikely. I agree. You knew you wanted to do science earlier. Oh yeah. W- why? Age nine. I was called uh-huh. by the universe. You were called by the universe. Yeah, first visit was here divinely... to the Hayden Planet. Oh, uh... I just say divinely. I just said the universe. <laughs> <laughs> you put the divinity yeah, yeah, in the universe. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's what I like to. It's one of my <laughs> divine bits. But um... uh, so uh, my first visit to the New York City's Hayden Planetarium is it, and that where, was where... Uh, that's where our office is right now. Yeah, where we're, yeah. we're recording this. It's a story that I think plays better in a small town. You know, yeah, small yeah. town kid goes away, comes back and runs the stuff. Here I tell that to people. They say, yeah, and your point is, <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's not as impressive Uptown, in a big town. Yeah. But a part of me is delighted, even enchanted by the the duty that I have, sure. have to bring to others what educators and scientists of yore mm-hmm. have brought, had brought to me when I was up and coming. Well, look, I mean, I, I think, yeah, that I think that notion, I mean, there's very few people who, who are as renowned science communicators as you. And so with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but was it really, I mean... Is this a script for a superhero movie? <laughs> yeah, what are we doing right, here? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know yeah. whether, I don't know how to figure out who's who yet, but we'll worry about that. But you need a deeper voice. With great power comes great you, responsibility. You've got the voice. There we go. Thank you. Um so was it really the, uh, transformative? Was it really an epiphany coming here? Or was it, I mean, when you were growing yeah, up it was before... epiphanic. Yes. Yeah. I'm in the dome and the lights dim, the stars come out. And I'd only seen the stars from the Bronx. Oh, which you can a, you see? A dozen can, of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was say. Right. And so the stars come out in the dome of the mm-hmm. planetarium. And think about it. It's kind of planetarium experiences. We probably all remember our first time yeah. in a planetarium dome. Yeah. And in a way, it was the world's first virtual reality yeah, space. Sure. Just yeah, think about that, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're transformed, the room disappears, and you're just yeah. floating in space. And I was just awestruck, starstruck, I yeah, should say. Yeah, yeah. And that starstruckness stayed with me. And uh, first I thought it was a hoax. Was like, there aren't this many stars. Yeah, I know, no, I have evidence, yeah. I have Bronx evidence <laughs> yeah. that there aren't this many stars. And then I learned later that that is how many, there's yeah. more than that even. Yeah, yeah. And and it was not the space program, even though these years occurred in the late 1960s for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, I loved that we went to the moon, but that had no forces operating on my ambitions mm-hmm. to study the universe. I knew enough then that the moon is like sitting in front of our noses. Oh, okay. See, and see. I cared about, you know, the Big Bang and uh, galaxies and quasars. Wow, and okay. So that was on a scale far beyond just 
joyriding in orbit, you wow. know, 200 miles above Earth's surface, or even the moon that is far to our spaceships, but close yeah, for a lot, in, for in a lot the universe. One of the things that was happening in the field of learning and memory at the time mm -hmm. is that people were working with very simple stimuli. They, they would have people memorize a list of words and try to, or learn a list of yeah. words and try to remember them after different periods of times. Every now and then, um, they'd use stimuli that maybe were a little different, but they were very simple, sometimes nonsense syllables. They were trying to have them be as simple as possible. And when I started my ex my experiments, I wanted them to more closely match the real world. So I started showing people films of auto accidents, <laughs> and those were my stimuli. And other p scientists were not doing work that, we're, that uh, way. So in, in, in that sense... That was a little different. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, but the parent, but but the. Am so, I correct that in that? By the way, in those experiments, you could get people to just to get, and maybe it's a a precursor to what would happen later. Was it in those experiments where you could get people to infer how fast someone was going by describing an auto accident in different in different terms? Yeah, well, yeah, or asking a question that uses a loaded word for yeah. how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other uh, versus how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. And and we showed that people said the, the cars were going faster with smash than hit. So it was already an early indication that you could influence what, what people thought, by the way, by, by just giving them loaded words. Yes, but my first thought was I was looking at leading questions, and okay. I could see that the leading questions would affect the answer. Um, then I showed that those leading questions could affect the answers to totally different questions that you put to a person, often much later. So if I came back to you after I'd asked you the smash question mm -hmm. a week later and say, by the way, a few more questions for you. Did you see any broken glass? People were twice as likely to say, yes, I saw broken glass. There wasn't any mm -hmm. if we had used the word smash nice. versus hit. So then I began to see these leading questions as just a vehicle for supplying suggestive information to people that would affect their memory. And and that ultimately would lead to the label uh, of the misinformation effect. You, uh, you supply people with misinformation and they will often accept it, absorb it into their memory. It causes a contamination or a distortion of memory. I think I've heard that called the Loftus effect, actually, from other people. <laughs> well, I, I, I called it the misinformation effect. When did you know? I mean, did you know even when you're pursuing your your PhD that you were that this was the direction that you were going to become an, a profession, an academic, or 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 was there at the time? Did you think it was a stepping stone to potentially something else? Or no, I think um, uh, when I started, I was diffident and uncertain. Mm -hmm. But after a year. Um, working as a graduate student, mm -hmm. I got enthusiastic and I was convinced that I was going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when I got my PhD, um, I did try to get some postdoctoral position Which and managed. was glad I did. Yeah, we managed to do. Was it any specific thing that turned you on, uh, that turned your, you on and said, this is the right path for me? I don't think so, because it was interesting, because the micro background yes. was discovered and uh, it was possible to have some new simple ideas which were um, relevant to for these. For some listeners, I guess that there was a sea change, and even it was a little early for me, although, uh, yeah, so uh, in terms of understanding the significance, but but uh, 
uh, one of your, I guess, someone who was potentially a mentor of some sort, Fred Hoyle, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there was a big debate about wh- whether there was a Big Bang. And, and, and I, I mean, while the microwave background was discovered, mm-hmm. which, is this, which is the remnant of the Big Bang yes. the, the, that we now recognize as the remnant of the Big Bang, was it uh, immediately, I mean, in retrospect, we often make it sound like something immediately changed, there was a paradigm shift. Was there a paradigm shift at the time that was immediately recognized as unambiguous? Did people change their minds or not? Well, I think in a year or two, the, they had to have data at different wavelengths to see if the spectrum yeah. Was, yeah. was thermal. But I think it did convert almost everyone at that time. Um, Fred Hoyt himself was never fully converted. Um, he uh, tried to have elaborate theories, uh, and I would say ended up believing what I call a steady bang, some compromise. Yeah, yes. Um, And, of course, I I hugely admired Fred Hoyle, Mm -hmm. but I never really worked with him because he started to go off in slightly eccentric directions at the time when I started to be be in the subject. But he was a really great figure in the subject, if you look back at all the things he did. He had an immense impact, and Mm -hmm. certainly... Well, these things are always. I know. I know your view about awards, and and I share it in many cases. But he certainly he did work that certainly was on par, and many people could say worthy of a Nobel Prize. And, and, oh, of course, well, yeah. he he should have got it for his work with with Fowler. But yeah. but more more generally, he was a real uh, polymath and yeah. foot, very inventive and made. Uh, lots of contributions to all branches of astronomy and, and, and of, of course, <laughs> but he also enjoyed um, he enjoyed debate and um, uh, before the microwave background was discovered mm-hmm. there was as you say um, the steady state theory yeah. advocated by him and uh, Bondi and Gold yeah. they were three sort of very noisy and articulate people yeah. uh, I don't think they carried much uh, um, resonance outside the UK oh really uh, um, uh, certainly not in Russia or not in America either but in the UK it was an important debate and um, um, uh, the debate involved um, the radio astronomers because mm-hmm. they were the first people who found evidence that the universe couldn't be in a steady state because yeah. they, they found that there was m- more evidence that uh, um, radio sources um, uh, were strong mm-hmm. and that radio galaxies existed spewing out radio waves uh-huh. in the past than now, uh-huh. contrary to what you'd expect in a steady state. Yeah. And um, this was a debate where Martin Ryle um, was correct and... Uh, I listened to these debates in the 60s and I felt that Hoyle was perverse not to take them seriously. Uh-huh. But then, then I read more history of the subject. I realised that in the 50s, Ryle had been equally dogmatic when he'd been wrong. Oh, I see. Um, and so I understood that uh, Fred had a reason for being somewhat sceptical, mm-hmm. whereas I came fresh on the scene and Ryle seemed to be talking a great deal of sense. And indeed he was at that time, but he, he had been dogmatic and wrong oh, so and had earlier standoffs <laughs> with Hoyle and Gold. I just think, you know, we, let, we, we, put, we restrict movies because they have sex in them, but we don't if, when people are being stabbed in the eye or their head is being I, cut I, off. I think it was training day. I was watching in America. I was in the gym once, believe it or not. Um, and a training <laughs> well, day was on. To me, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it was like 2 p.m. in the, in the morning. And there's yeah. a scene there mm-hmm. where it, he's going, fuck you, no, fuck you. Fuck. Yeah. And they changed that to forget you, right? Yeah. And then he shot him in the heart. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'd rather I'd yeah, rather you yeah, swore at me yeah, yeah, if given the choice. Yeah, yeah, given well, the I choice. find more offensive. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, no, it's yeah, that's really uh, uh, it. well. But you know, what's kind of nice is that one can use comedy. I think to talk about things which which would otherwise uh, uh, be of, of great course. concern, but it, it gives you an in in. It gives but you a what, away. That's, that's what humor's for. It gets yeah. us over bad stuff. Yeah. If you can't joke about bad stuff. 
what, yeah. what kind of that, that's yeah, exactly that, what it's for yeah. you know it it, it 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 um it sharpens our our claws you know it makes us it it, it keeps us fighting it, but fit it also for the real us, world it also gives you license as a as a either an entertainer or as a public figure oh, of course yeah because, it helps you understand things yeah as well I, I think it was um a picasso that said um art is a lie that helps you understand the truth yeah. So all these things in a metaphor, poetry, yeah. jokes, satire—they are, they are, they are teaching you something, whether you know it or not. It's sne- it's sneaking in learning. Yeah. It's, See now, you know, I I didn't meet you to the philosophy program. There was the art. The, you oh, gave yeah, me yeah, the art sure. line. That was yeah. it. Yeah, that was oh, it. Yeah, I've, I've got loads of them. I've got <laughs> no, but, loads of sayings of other really <laughs> clever people. Well, it's you know, but that's often what you need to get at school. It's really interesting to mm. say that, but or at least appreciating what's what what are good ideas and bad. That's a, that in itself is an interesting and and. Take some some learning, or at least some experience, to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, well, well I mean, and, and, and obviously the problem comes that we're all different, mm-hmm. and um, uh, art is subjective. Yeah, you know, yeah, comedy or yeah. whatever. What's funny? What funny um, is, is what if, people find funny. It depends upon their experience and the and the mood they're exactly. in the day, and so many other things that, that. I don't think you should be ashamed of finding anything funny. Yeah, because it's not your fault. that's what you are yeah if you see someone fall over the street and you laugh you can then feel but it was you've obviously found it funny yeah yeah (laughs) you can't deny it yeah i i see it with audiences they laugh and then they go oh Oh my god i shouldn't have should i have i don't know well if you laughed you should have well you know it's a great feeling yeah it's a great feeling and there must be and there's got to be an evolutionary purpose right i mean i uh, think so oh it has to be and what was amazing to me is not it's not amazing that that it, that that we recovered from the whatever you want to call the dark ages. It's amazing that they survived for so long because there's this innate ultimately people had to recognize how ridiculous the dog some of the dogmas were. Just asking yourself the question including Adam and Eve. I mean, ultimately the the self-contradictory issues of good and evil of of taking people as you describe in Adam and Eve who were have no who are completely innocent and punishing them for something they have no idea is wrong. Uh, uh, these questions must have been there, but there ultimately must have been an incredible fear. Well, there was an incredible fear of questioning, because if you questioned, your life was in peril. But look, I I agree. And of course, you couldn't uh, stand up at a certain point and say, this you know, story is absurd yeah. uh, as an origin story. There, mm. there are, I'll, I'll tell you five other ones that are better, yeah. and so forth and so on. So that's true. You would get in horrendous trouble. You wouldn't. You you wouldn't uh, reproduce. Yeah, <laughs> survive. Yeah, yeah. That said, for me, and you may not agree with this. You probably don't agree with this. But I couldn't have written this. I couldn't have spent years thinking about the Adam and Eve story and writing this book on the rise and fall of the Adam and Eve story if I believed that it was contemptible and ridiculous. Oh, sure. Uh, I think that it is incredibly powerful, including the the things that are, are to us the most uh, disturbing about the story, such as the fact that there's a, a prohibition not to eat of the tree of good and evil when it's only if you understood something about the difference between good and evil that you'd know how to observe a prohibition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. But that's Kafka. Yeah. That's that's not absurdity. Well, it is absurdity, yeah. but in an existential sense yeah. that we're constantly confronted with situations like this. That's what it is to be, for one thing, it's what it is to to be a child and uh-huh. not understand 
the, the, the nature of most of the rules uh, and yet have to be told that you have to obey them without horrendous consequences. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes actually there are horrendous consequences and so forth. In other words, the when I thought it was only ridiculous people mm-hmm. if i thought it was only ridiculous people who have a you know want a theme park in which they ride dinosaurs yeah, in yeah, kentucky yeah uh i wouldn't have wanted to take this seriously it's actually understanding that some of the most intelligent and thoughtful people for centuries and centuries uh not only took this seriously not because they were afraid yeah. but because they thought there was something deep and important to learn from this that that the that it is one of the great human fictions. Uh-huh. It's just a fiction. That's it, the thing that's that the, you have to the, understand. It's a fiction. It's a fi- but it's and, a work of literature, but a work of literature, it, a tiny one, but in its way as powerful as King Lear, as powerful uh, as uh, as anything that we where we think. Yes, so, the Mahabharata. This is a deep way of thinking about the world. The sticking point in the negotiations right now, according to Trump as uh, intellectual property rights. Uh, They are uh, not observing uh, intellectual property rights. What that means is uh, exorbitant uh, patent restrictions, radically uh, opposed to free trade, built into the World Trade Organization system to protect U.S. corporations. So we want Bill Gates to be the richest man in the world. So therefore, there's a essentially monopoly for windows. Pharmaceutical prices have to go out of sight, so therefore this huge patent restrictions on uh, for pharmaceuticals. Suppose China decided not to observe them. Who suffers? Well, Bill Gates will have a little less money. Uh, users of uh, computers will be able to find better programs than windows. Uh, Pharmaceutical corporations, instead of having you know trillions of dollars, will only have a few trillions. Uh, um, people will be able to buy cheaper drugs. Uh, I mean, it's argued that this would cut back innovation, but if you look into it, that's not the way innovation takes place. Uh, take say Windows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have to tell you the development of computers, software, internet, and so on. That was all a taxpayer, most of it a taxpayer expense for decades. In uh-huh. fact, the same with pharmaceuticals. Huge. There's a good reason why, if you walk around MIT, uh, you see uh, pharmacy, you see Pfizer, yeah. you know, yeah, artists, They're all there, kind of feeding off the uh, uh, the creative uh, scientific work done at the laboratories, uh, mostly at government expense. If you'd gone back there 50 years ago, you would have seen Raytheon. Uh, uh, when I was a student then, there, Raytheon, yeah, Raytheon, Raytheon, those were the big... And that's because electronics was kind of the cutting edge of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's biology. So, yeah. but And this is at every research university in the country, not just MIT. Sure. So... So going back to China and the intellectual property, why should they uh, observe the intellectual property rights which are rammed through by uh, the United States and other rich countries? Now let's look at a little history. How did England develop by stealing technology from more advanced countries like India or the low countries, even Mm -hmm. Ireland? How did the United States develop by stealing technology from India, from uh, England. Uh, that's why we got a textile industry, yeah. steel industry, and so on. Of course, it wasn't called stealing then. It was just uh, that's the way it developed. 
uh, every single developed country is developed that way. Uh, then comes something that uh, economic historians call the kicking away the ladder. Uh, first you climb the ladder, then you kick it away so nobody else can do it. Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of what lies behind all of this lies behind the uh, effort to try to impede Chinese economic development by things like demanding uh, intellectual property rights. Do you see any discussion of this? I try not to think how the universe is without yeah. actually learning how it is in the first place. But yeah, well, it still has that no, but, no, I give, but I do have some examples. There are things that I thought were true that later in life learned they were not true yeah. or I slightly misunderstood it. Yeah. And that was astonishing to mm-hmm. me. It was, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Okay, I have one for you. You ready? Okay. Easter, mm-hmm. uh, for me, I for 20 years of my life, mm-hmm. it was the first Sunday mm-hmm. after the first full moon oh. after the vernal equinox. Oh. Okay? Okay. Okay. That's really, that was for the first 20 so, years of your life, that's how you define Easter. Wow. No, 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 no. That's what. It's not how I defined it. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm it very was, impressed. It was my understanding of Easter oh, in oh, the Gregorian calendar. Oh, oh okay. The Gregorian calendar redefined Easter. Y- yeah, okay. For all of the Catholic world at the yeah. time in 1582. Mm-hmm. And the Protestants were later to uptake mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. Um, this new definition. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, turns out it's not that. It's the first Sunday after the first full moon after March 21st. After literally March 21st? Yes. So that's the religious yeah. equinox, oh, and then there's the astronomical, astronomical equinox, equinox, which is not which could go to the twenty second or go to yeah, the twentieth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And right now it happens to be it happens to be in, in March twentieth, mm-hmm. which was awkward in the year twenty nineteen because there was a full moon mm-hmm. on March twenty first. Oh. So Easter would have been, according to my yeah. definition, the very next Sunday, yeah. like two days later yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it was not, and that confused me. So I had to call up all my expert friends to, oh. no, 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 you're using the astronomical equinox. It's the religious equinox, which by definition is March 21st. Okay. Yes. And, and what was your reaction to learning that? Was it, I was a little embarrassed that I would oh, have been publicly oh. saying okay, this. Okay, well, that decide, yeah, okay, because you're a public figure. But, let, but personally... I was, was, well, no, I was glad to have. Is it, it was fun. Corrected it. Oh yeah, well, that's the like, point. And and I tell people often, I want to learn something new every day. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. being proved you're wrong is actually mm-hmm. personally well, for, not for everybody, but if yeah. it's fun, it, the aha experience is essentially saying, aha, I never right. realized it was that way. Right, and we get a kind of inner joy at that because they always said March 21st, and for yeah. many decades that was when the equinox landed. And I did not give myself the occasion to imagine yeah. that even the Jesuit priests who came up with this would yeah. have anchored it to that day on the calendar and not actually chased it to the equinox because yeah. they knew enough astronomy, yeah. even pre-Galileo, to know when the equinox, what what you know, what day the equinox occurred on. Anyhow, that was the most recent, and that was just yeah, a few, sure. week, yeah, well, that's a few weeks ago well, from the I've time of this a lot recording. About that. About, yeah, about a subject about Easter, which I never. Really and Passover about. is the first oh. full moon. Is after the equinox because the Jewish calendar is really lunar based. It's right? lunar based, and but you do it on the full moon. Don't 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 look at me. Your people, <laughs> <laughs> your your genetic my brethren, ancestors. Your genetic brethren. brethren. Yes. yes. In fact, my in fact, I have to say that twenty three and me told me that they are definitely my genetic. Brethren. Okay. What is it again? So I know. Okay. So 
so it turns out the Jewish definition mm-hmm. of the equinox is the same as the Christian one. It's just March 21st. Oh, I see. Okay. So it is the first full moon after March 21st. Oh. And so the way the Catholic Church said we're never going to have these overlap because there was a risk of that happening the way it was previously defined. Yeah, okay. It was previously defined as the first Sunday after the equinox. Okay. That's uh, the the full moon was yeah. not even in the picture. Oh, okay. Okay. And until 1582, um, the Julian calendar was not properly accounting for leap days. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so it had a leap day every four years. That overcorrected the calendar. We had to start taking out leap days to recorrect it. And we had accumulated 10 days that didn't belong there. Mm-hmm. You got me started on this. But yeah, I'll, I know. I'll finish in 10 seconds. Uh-huh. So I've heard that took, before. <laughs> they took out the 10 days, jump-started the calendar. Uh-huh. October that year lost 10 days, uh-huh. which was interesting for how you're going to pay rent. Uh-huh. You have to invent sort of amortizing rent schedules. Uh, and so, therefore... And they added just for good measure. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna let you go because I know that ten seconds. Could they be, added for it's good measure. Fascinating five minutes. Though, it's the it? Sunday after the first full moon, mm-hmm. after March 21st, and Passover is on the full moon, and so we're good. Okay, good. They'll never be on the same day. Okay, Hard, okay, that's that's okay. That's good to know. They'll mm-hmm. never be. On but the they same. almost were. And that, and that that was the confusion. They're very close this year. Yeah, and, and 2019, everything lands in the religious possible, most religious possible way. Yeah. Passover is on Thursday, Day. which is Holy Thursday. Thursday. Passover, you have your Seder. Yeah. It's rumored that the Last, Last Supper, Supper was, was a Seder. Seder. Yeah, even then, I know that. And then Good Friday, mm-hmm. Jesus gets tortured and crucified. Mm-hmm. Why it's called Good, I don't know. Oh, yeah, exactly. But it's one of the mysteries of the <laughs> Trinity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, three days, you know, on the third day, um, a Sunday, he rose. And then you get Easter. That's the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And um, oh, plus, they had to go through a lot to turn the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath was everybody's Sabbath. Sabbath. It was yeah, Sabbath. So they, they had to turn and it And now you study. have the Christian Sabbath. They said, we can't do it. You can't do this with the Jews. Jews yeah. are bad. Uh-huh. So move, pick another day. So they pick Sunday. But if you look at the name for Saturday <laughs> in the Romance languages, uh, in <laughs> Spanish, it's Sab- Sa- Sabado, it's all Sabbath. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's all rooted there. Yeah. I love, I love letting you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and it, the funny thing it's is... It's the seventh day, it's, God rest it. Yeah. And, and, and a and sabbatical, we, you go on a sabbatical, it's the seventh year. See? It's any, all good. Any other... Any? No, we're good. <laughs> Beat that one into the ground. What's next in your, I, note, in your the notepad? The one thing I hadn't intended to talk about was Easter and Passover. Okay. This, in, no, it's good. But as an example, but you know, my goal is to sort of never to know when Easter or Passover is. But anyway... <laughs> now you know. I, yeah, yeah, no. It, uh, well, we it, want. well, it doesn't, except maybe. And Lucretius, you know, it's interesting to me that you expressed what Lucretius said, because, again, it's an issue, it's uh, something I, I always try and say in my in my dialogues, we should enjoy our brief moment of the sun. The fact that we'll disappear for some is tragic. But I think, I like to think for, from Lucretius, from my understanding, and most, and my understanding essentially completely comes from you, uh, that, that, we should enjoy our brief moment of the sun for a real reason that we that life is more precious because because it disappears that yes that, although that's actually a deep problem in lucretian philosophy why is life more precious why should you why is it better to live than not to live i think that is a a problem that's not easily answered in epicureanism in a way that it is easily answered in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or whatever, there are a variety of, where it's all part of a divine scheme, you're, you're, it's a way of serving God, and whatever the account would be. It's not clear in Lucretius why, why 
uh, essay is better than non essay. Mm -hmm. uh, why, uh, why, why does it matter? Uh, and is the, that a reason not to fear death, or is it? Or well, he thought that was a reason not to fear death. But there's another flip side of that, which is that, which is why then should you savor existence? Mm. Uh, not entirely clear. And the uh, his his way of dealing with that, but it isn't, as I say, philosophically. I mean, there are people who are more expert than I am in, mm. in this, so they may have a different view. But it seems seems to me that his way of dealing with that is to take a kind of swerve mm -hmm. uh, from that and say it's the pursuit of pleasure the reason that you you uh, save your existence is because we're we're we should pursue pleasure as our highest good we don't pursue god as our highest good we don't uh, uh, pursue moral virtue as our highest good. good we pursue pleasure and in that we share with all other sentient creatures that's yeah. what an, a cow does yeah. that's what a cockroach does mm -hmm. uh, we uh, that's what it is to be alive and to want to reproduce uh, and that's what what he drew from that i mean it's a complex it actually when you it seems simultaneously simple then when you push mm -hmm. on it it's rather complex what sure. he drew from that was a was first of all it's not about you mm -hmm. uh It's not about you, Lawrence, Stephen, yeah. but it's not about you as a species. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to, you're not going to last forever, but also your species is not going to last forever. There's, there's a constant set of mutations and adaptations to, to what's available in the universe, to how to, how to, uh, eat and reproduce. And we do it well at the moment, apparently, but we're not going to do it forever. Something yeah. better will come along or the, the, our environment will change. What does that mean in terms of our long-term trajectory? I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.